going to be Mike will be joining us here shortly. And at the bottom of the screen, you're going to see Michael's contact information. You can send him an email or you can visit one of the websites and you can hit the contact page, reach out to him, reach out to the organization and just kind of discuss, you know, what it is that you or, you know, fellow partners or anything else may need in reaching out. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing there, Mike? I'm Is it Mike or Michael? I go by Michael or, you know, whatever. It's the Sometimes I'll be like, I go by Michael, but, you know, everybody always takes a shorthand. Gotcha, gotcha. Can you hear okay, me okay? So, yes, I can. It's perfect. Okay. You know, and, and again, I want to welcome everyone to today's show. And Michael Zanito, he has the 20-plus years with law enforcement. He is a Gulf War combat vet and also 25-plus years in nursing. And... You know, during Michael's time, you know, in combat, in law enforcement, you know, he witnessed things that, you know, he himself went through. And then because of the things that he went through himself, he had the passion about that to better other individuals and give other individuals an avenue to reach out. And he also has his you know, organizations for the dogs and everything else as well. And I'm going to let, you know, Mike explain that. And again, Mike, good afternoon. Good evening. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for having me, Mike. Yeah, basically, you know. So basically, uh, you kind of kind of hit it in a nutshell. I'm a combat veteran from the first Gulf War. Thank you for that. I uh, worked as a uh, nurse before I actually went uh, into law enforcement. I uh, did the reserve thing for a little while because I really wasn't sure about how I how I wanted to to do my career path. I really enjoyed being a nurse. I worked in pediatrics. I worked in emergency rooms all over Southern California. And uh, it was it was it was very rewarding, a lot of fun. I, I felt like I was doing something really good. So I was able to help people. I really focused on uh, the children and uh, the trauma patients type things, if you will. But the big thing was when I got into law enforcement, it kind of opened up some more doors for me as far as helping people. Um, I've kind of been pretty much doing my whole entire adult life um, serving others. It's in some some fashion, whether it was starting out in, in my juvenile years as a Boy Scout and doing things around the neighborhoods, that kind of stuff, and then going into the military, serving my country, um, joining the, the nurse force, you know, taking care of sick people, and then uh, getting in the police department to uh, continue serving my community. I actually served in the city of Anaheim in California, and I retired from the city of Garden Grove in California as well. Grew up in both those towns as a child and uh, graduated from high school in Garden Grove. Uh, so it was kind of a neighborhood that I was, that I was familiar with and it kind of uh, gave me some avenues about which direction I wanted to go. Once I actually retired, um, I kind of went through some things with work, a transition period from uh, retiring. Something happened with me at work where I was going through a lot of stuff. And they always say that, you know, the police department's a brotherhood. Well, I'm kind of an old school guy. I got hired in the 90s. So the brotherhood back then is way different from what the brotherhood is today in police work. 100%. And I'm probably not going to make a lot of friends saying this kind of stuff, but I'm going to tell you two straight. 
the reality is, is that brotherhood that happened when I was a rookie, you know, in the late, uh, in the late eighties, early nineties, doesn't exist like it is today. It's not like that. It's, it's basically, it's a self-serving, um, it's a, it's a cutthroat type thing. Um, a lot of people are doing their thing and it's, it's one of those kind of things where they don't care who they throw under the bus. And let, let me ask you a question real quick. I'm yeah. going to cut you off, but you know, in, in regard to the camaraderie, you know, because uh -huh. that, that is important, you know, and especially when, you know, we have partners that, you know, we have to trust if we're both on a call together or being able to rely on that, you know, so if we can't be close and have that camaraderie, it, it's going to create problems, you know, for the both sides, you know, and not only that, but, you know, every call that you're responding to and everything else like that. Now, did, did that change transpire during your time being active? Or did you see that kind of that loss of the brotherhood, the loss of the camaraderie, you know, during the course, which I, I know you just touched on as far as, you know, one of the causes on, you know, you actually stepping out. But, you know, was it during the course, you know, of your service that you started to see, you know, the change, you know, amongst the brothers and sisters of law enforcement? Looking back at it now, I saw and I kind of I identify what the turning point is at that point. But when I was going through that. No, I didn't recognize it. I didn't didn't really see it because I was I was involved in it. I was part of the part of the brotherhood, if you will. Okay, I wore the same uniform. I did did the same job that that everybody else did. Um, I think that and, and it kind of touches on a little bit on what, what I'm doing today. Is you know, PTSD is something that is has been existent for decades. You know, it was it was shell shock back in the sure, Vietnam. Sure, yeah, and then, you know, the name of it. Doing, and yeah, I mean it's. So it's had its own its own thing. I mean, one of the big things that I'm pushing, I'm not trying to get off topic, but one of the big things I'm pushing is it's not a disorder. It's not post-traumatic stress disorder. It's right. post-traumatic stress injury or illness because disorder is a fake mindset. It's a, it's a technique that we build up in our own mindset that we're broken and we can never be fixed. There's something seriously wrong with us. Yeah, there is something wrong with you. You have an emotion because you're human. You have a reaction to an incident that happened because you're human. Um, it's how you recover and how you react to that incident and then how you start to heal and find that transitioning period to say, it's okay to not be okay right now. So going back to the camaraderie thing, it's one of those things where, and you kind of touched on it, you're going on a call and it's a pretty serious call and your brothers or sisters in uniform are there and you know they have your back because you wear the same uniform they're they're there to handle the same situation they're there to they're there to deal with the call deal with the 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 action whatever it is and you guys are all fine but then you go on to the next call and you go on with someone else and there's ridicule behind how that call was handled there's there's stuff that's said behind the other officers backs about how that call was handled or how things should have went or it's one of those things like if you got someone who's goes to the call and they want to handle the call a certain way. Well, they're not the handling officer, so they will chime in and they'll, <laughs> they'll, you know, try to give their two cents or, or try to maybe change the call's direction instead of, instead of it being handled the way it should be handled by the handling officer. The camaraderie thing, again, they do the choir practices. If you don't know if you're familiar with choir practice where you go and you get off shift in the morning and you go to a, a parking lot and you go barbecue and you have a couple of beers and, talk about your day and, you know, talk smack about other people and whatnot. Um, or you just go home and you go back to your family. 
Um, but the brotherhood itself is one of those kind of things where at face value, yeah, there's a brotherhood and, you know, the code of silence and we're going to protect our own and all that kind of stuff. But that's way back in the day, back when I was a rookie in the early 90s. And another thing, too, I wanted to kind of touch on while we're talking about this, because and you know, some other friends as well, too, you know, uh, Christopher Hoyer and Chris Gregorio, you know, we touch on it a lot as well, too, in regard to the senior officers. You know, because if it's not being done at core level, you know, and, you know, a lot of times it's kind of hands off for the superiors and supervisors, whatever the case may be, to where, you know, that, that plays a large role in how it affects the camaraderie amongst the brothers and sisters, you know, within the law enforcement as well. Because if they're not engaging and making things sound okay, you know, going into the PTSD, you know, to where, you know, a lot of, you know, for decades and for years and even you still see it in some departments today unfortunately to where it's demoralized or it makes you know they try to promote it as you know an individual being weak or it makes it seem as if an individual won't be able to fulfill or uphold you know their duties and tasks you know as officers but you know it's you know how much engaged did you see you know superior officers back then while you were active and then did that change you know as things went along because you know, unfortunately, like times have changed a lot to where today, you know, our superiors or, you know, it, it's based on test taking abilities opposed to individuals that have their time in and those that are like truly qualified, you know, to handle situations and things like that. So how much did you see changing, you know, during the course of, you know, your time in opposed to, you know, your retirement and everything else as well, too, because that did play a large role. I mean, was it back then, was it I'm not going to say demoralized, but was it frowned upon if individuals did admit that, you know, me pulling the baby from the dumpster is bothering me? You know, I mean, because there are so many things that you see, you know, as being an officer that, you know, civilians, we can't fathom, you know, as far as like what an officer truly sees in their day, in their career. So, I mean, how much does that affect with your superiors? Well, I'll tell you, it's. It's one of those kind of things where, and I keep saying the old school thing. When I started, if you had a bad call or if you had something that affected you in a, in a negative way, you would have your peer, your brother, your sister that was on that call or your supervisor that would pull you aside. And this happened to me on several occasions where, you know, my emotion or my, my attitude changed after a certain call I was on, whether it was a child abuse or it was a child molest or a rape or, or a dead body or something like that. And I would basically meet that supervisor or meet that brother of mine for a copy stop after the call. And they basically say, you know what, stop being an excuse the expression, stop being a little bitch, time to get back in the fight. You know, it's, it, let's, we got to get over this and be done with it. And it kind of ended there. And that, and that was on the forefront when I was a rookie. And it was one of those kind of things where, you know, you kind of like, whoa, you know, I, I want to fit in. So I'm going to kind of just let this go. Well, exactly. as me coming in, I mean, I, I joined after I got back from the Gulf War. So seeing combat already, seeing people. I mean, I was a, I was a Navy medic. I was a corpsman. So I saw death destruction. I saw, you know, catastrophic. I saw people blown up. I mean, yeah, the Gulf War really wasn't anything like the Afghanistan and all that kind of stuff. But I saw I saw combat. I mean, I saw stuff that that, you know, not every single human on this planet would be able to see. You can line 15, 20 guys up there and they're going to react 15, 20 different times or different ways. But it's one of those things and going back to what you said is that, you know, the superiors, 
And even today, even more, I'll tell you what the big problem is today, is that the minute that they identify the PTSI is a problem, they own it. The departments own it. The cities own it. And just like when there's an officer-involved shooting, an officer-involved shooting, most departments will pull the officer aside that got involved in the shooting. They will then take their weapon away as evidence and replace that weapon with another weapon. So they don't feel like they're, you know, it gets into their psyche. Like, oh my God, my, my gun got taken away from me. I just got in the shooting and all the adrenaline and everything like that. And then they separate that officer and put them with someone up here and basically take them back to the station to do their investigation and interview and all that kind of stuff. There's departments today, and this is a fact because I know three different departments in Southern California that do this today, is that they take the gun away and they don't replace the gun. <laughs> that does a huge thing up here. Even though you don't want to get into police work to let this identify who you are or or make it like I was not Mike Zanito police officer. I was Officer Zanito at the police department. It didn't identify who I am. When I took my badge and my, my uniform off, I went home to my family or I went to choir practice with my buddies or I went to a concert on the weekend or whatever. But it, it, it didn't identify who I am. I worked with guys who had time on before I got on that were my training officers and <clears throat> my seniors, if you will, that their job, that job identified who they were. And soon after they retired, they couldn't let it go. They, they, it, it's, it, it, it absorbed who they were and it made them who they were today. Um, few of them, just like, you know, as well as I do life, ex life expectancy after, you know, 20, 30 years of police work or 20, 30 years in the fire service or EMS is very, very short. Um, California, you know, I, I used to get this all the time. They tell me well, you retired at 47 years old. Well, I went on a, on a on an injury. I, I had a medical retirement. But in California, you retire at 50 years old, and people are like, "Wow, 50? That's really young." But they don't understand what the body has gone through, what your mind has gone through for those you know those 25, 30 years of service, all the stress and all the things. Um, superiors, it's 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 kind of a double-edged sword because they want to care about their troops but yet they also have to be the political figure because they're the head of department they're the chief of police or chief of fire service or whatever they are so they're still going to answer the city but it's one of those kind of things and i've said this all along one of the big reasons why i never even tried to even be interested in promoting other than getting out of patrol or doing, you know, doing a different job, but going on to be a sergeant or be a lieutenant. I mean, I personally, in my own personal opinion, I feel like you kind of sell your soul. You're kind of giving up the fact that you're not really a cop anymore because you can't go out and do the police work anymore. So <laughs> now you got to be a supervisor and you can't be a lieutenant and hang out with your buddies that you worked in patrol with two years ago and still be their friend. You're the administrator now. Um, so, Kind of along the lines of what you're saying is if you got a situation where someone's struggling okay um if they're one of the good guys or good old boys if you will they're going to be taken care of a certain way if they are not part of the good old boys then they might be handled a different way 
But again, once they identify that situation, they identify that there's a problem with that person, they've got to do something about it and they own it. They own it forever. And, you know, it, well, it makes perfect sense. And kind of, you know, being ready for this stuff and everything else as well, too, that, you know, we're, we're going to get into the depth as far as, you know, your, your program and what it provides, you know, the Peacekeepers for Life. But so we've, we've had conversations before to where, you know, you, you have training when you're going in. But the one training that is never provided is that emotional training to to get you ready for what you're about to see. Because like you just said, you know, is that you're seeing so many things, especially being a medic, you know, where 90 percent of human beings, you know, they themselves really couldn't process or, you know, deal with a lot of the things that you've been exposed to, a lot of the things that, you know, others have been exposed to. So, you know, how do you mentally emotionally prepare someone i mean because you you have to expose them to, to some type of what to expect you know because again you know and, and i know that a majority of individuals that sign up you know to be a law enforcement officer to join the military especially in today's age you know they they know the possible risk but do they really know until you ex- are exposed to something you really can't you know have that feeling or know how to deal with that feeling process you know and and that sequence of processing an emotion is one of the most important aspects of it and that's why like with the ptsi and everything else to where you know being able to speak to somebody about that and you know is is that something that you feel with what you do with the peacekeepers for life that you know essentially could be a program that is implemented into law enforcement agencies across the nation for the cadets to better prepare them for, you know, stepping into the career that, you know, they've signed up for. So, I mean, I mean, do you know where I'm going with this as far as the, the processing, the emotion? I know mean, you really can't, you know, really expose them to the reality of what they're about to go through. But, I mean, is there is there something of what, as far as what you provide, instead of having people reach out after the fact, is there something that, you know, you can do or a service that you offer or a suggestion that you have on how to, better ready an individual to process a lot of what they're going to be exposed to during their career. Well, I'll tell you, it's kind of a, it's kind of a multi multifaceted question. It kind of goes in a couple different directions, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this. You cannot prepare anyone, any human in reality for what to expect of what's going to happen in their career. I've worked with guys who have been in four five, six shootings in their 20 plus years. I've worked with guys that have been in zero shootings and have never even thought about pulling the trigger. Um, I've worked with guys who've seen dead bodies, you know, almost on a weekly basis and, you know, horrific car accidents and whatnot. Uh, I mean, I personally on duty as a police officer, I did CPR seven times on, on people in my 20 plus years. Okay. And four of those were, babies. Okay. But I was that guy because I've, I was medically trained. I was that guy that if the call went out, no matter where it was in the city, I would go because I knew I was going to be able to do something than the average and not better than the average cop, but I was better qualified and I was more competent and and comfortable in doing that. As far as preparing them, um, one of the things that 
I would say that I think would be really, really important is in the academy, give them, give the recruits, give the new potential police officers, potential firefighters and paramedics and that, give them a little, a little tidbit of some mental wellness or what I call tactical wellness that kind of prepares them to be ready to when they are faced with that catastrophic event or they are faced with that situation that they've never been situated or been been thrown in before give them a way to identify that that is something that's not normal because at least bottom line is ems first responder it's not normal okay it's not it's not working in an office in a cubicle answering the phone and talking about real estate it's 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 and it, i'm not saying that i'm not downplaying the real estate either but it's, it's not normal. That's why they have a screening process for the police department and the fire department. Today um, in California, they didn't used to do full-blown backgrounds and psych tests on fire firefighters. They used to just go and you go to the academy, you go, go to your fire tech classes and that kind physical. of stuff. Yeah, now they're doing yeah, physical agility. Now they're doing full black backgrounds and psychological tests. The psychological screening that happens, and I'm, I live in Texas now, but. I can only speak for most of my most of my experience in in California. The MMPI and the CPI is a complete joke, and I will tell you that straight up. Judge me, whatever, whatever, however you want to call it. All it is is a modified, a specialized personality test for what that type of officer that is that department is looking for. Okay, I'll give you an example. I took the same MMPI for three different police agencies. One of them required a 60 unit minimum college education to be an entry level police officer to go to the academy for this one. Took the same test. Didn't pass that one because I was deemed a hot dog and too aggressive. Took the same test for another agency and no college required at all. Took it within six months of the one that I was deemed a hot dog and they Put the two together because they use them they use them hand in hand to make sure you have consistent answers and that kind of stuff and this one this department hired me and said you fit the profile this department was significantly more active in an area of the of southern california where i was applying and the other one wasn't so active but they wanted a certain type of officer because they had a certain type of type of uh lifestyle that was going on in this particular city hmm. when i ultimately got hired by my first department at Anaheim, basically the psych test wasn't really a relevant uh, testing process for me because I had done a job where I was a contractor for the county coroner's office and I was able to get to know a lot of different policies and procedures for police departments within Orange County where I wanted to work. And I happened to pick Anaheim because that was a big department. There was a lot of opportunity, a lot of things I could do. And as a reserve officer, which is what I was going into, I was able to go and do those things as a reserve officer on my own schedule, whenever I felt like doing it. I didn't have to worry about promoting or, or you know, any of that kind of stuff. So when I came to test, I had lots of friends that worked for that department. So they're like, hey, this Mike guy's a great guy. Let's, let's, let's give him a chance. Let's hire him as a reserve. Still had to go through the process and all that kind of stuff. But then when I got done with my reserve period and left nursing and went full time and ended up going to Garden Grove, I took the same psych test 
and they took that first psych test and said, okay, you're a hot dog here, but you fit, you fit what we're looking for here. So we're going to hire you. They hired me at Garden Grove. That's where I ended up hiring. But it was the same psych test. So I answered the questions the same way. It's like 1,200 and something questions for the MMPI and the, and the CPI. But if you look at it in theory, I mean, it asks you like nine different ways how you love your mother. It asks you nine different ways. Do you like mustard on your hot dog? Or you prefer poetry magazine over mechanics magazine? That's how you became a hot dog guy. Uh, <laughs> That's how you became the hot dog guy, the mustard. Yeah, exactly. So it's, so it's one of those kind of things that's like you kind of read into those questions. They say don't because they're true false. You just answer the questions. But then you think you start thinking, well, if I answer this way, well, maybe they're going to think I'm going to just go out and start, <clears throat> start shooting people and stuff like that. So back to your question about, about um, getting them prepared. One of the things that and we and we know that we know that that's going to be one of those things that once they identify that they that this is important which i mean we're already we're already both very well aware that suicide in the first responder it, it, it is it is beyond epidemic beyond epidemic even more so today with such a divide that's going on in this country but the preparation for that is basically that you get into the job you do the job, you go through your training, you go through your probation, and you have to assess yourself if this really is the job that you want to do. You don't do it for the paycheck. The people that are signing up for the job for the paycheck, those are the ones that we're dealing with with George Floyd and the power struggle and all that kind of stuff. Okay? You get There's agencies that pay them twelve fifty an hour. I mean, who would sign up for that at twelve fifty an hour without the passion to actually go out there and make a as difference? As a reserve yeah. officer, okay, I started out at ten dollars an hour, and I did the same job. My badge said police officer. The only difference between my badge and a full time badge is the full time badges had three numbers. I had four numbers. I wore the same uniform. I did the same job. I went out and did the same thing, and I started at ten dollars an hour my first year because that's what I had to do for for my. Uh, my probation and my training. <clears throat> then eventually it went, the payroll went up, but I still wasn't making the, you know, the money that cops were making. I wasn't getting overtime. I just got paid straight time because I was a part-time employee, but I didn't get into it because I wanted to make, you know, the money was good. Sure. I, I, I bought a house and, you know, took care of my family and that kind of stuff. It's important to live, but I didn't get into it for that reason. Um, one of the big things, I'm about, to, I'm, I'm about to add Christopher Hoyer to the stream right here. Oh, great. He's going to join in here. Hey, Christopher. What's going on, guys? Sorry. Hey, Chris, kind of, Christopher. Kind of waiting on the train. Oh, so it's, so. <laughs> it's okay. I appreciate you joining in. Today's guest is uh, Mike Zanito. You know, he has the 20 plus years law enforcement, he was a uh, Gulf War combat veteran. 25 plus years as you know nurse medic and you know he has nonprofits that deal with ptsi and you know get individuals you know resources and everything and he has uh dogs which we'll get to cover and all that stuff he has dog programs as well too for uh the, the paul's working dogs and the canine dogs as well so hey mike this is christopher Hoyer. he's a retired phoenix pd also author of the book when that day comes you know training for the fight that's one of the reasons why I'd kind of like to have you know him on this call with us or on this show with us as well. You know, because a lot of what you do, you know, Chris has dealt with and been affected by. And I kind of wanted to, you know, have you two collaborating together because you know what you both do is just a great benefit 
you know, to individuals that are active right now, individuals that have retired, individuals really going through, you know, the, the PTSI, PTSD, what they call. So great. You go by Chris or Christopher. Hey guys, sorry about that. I had to re uh, reload my thing. I'm uh, just Chris is fine. So okay. unless I'm in trouble, nice then, then it's Christopher yes. usually. So. All right. <laughs> you guys too, man. Thanks. Thanks. So, so basically what I was, what I was saying is that, is that if you, if you look at the preparation stuff, I think it's, it's gonna, it's gonna need to start, especially in this, in this society now, you know, we got the whole millennial thing and, you know, all three of us were raised in a different, different time. Okay. We, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear, you know, when we messed up, we were held accountable for stuff. If we got, if we were late for dinner, we got, you know, we got in trouble. And in this day and age, it's, it, that's going to be a lot of a lot of stuff. But preparing these kids that are starting in law enforcement today or an EMS, it, it's got to start at the academy. We get, we got to give them some kind of a of a mindset to start thinking. So it's like an FTO program. You don't learn how to be a cop in FTO program. You you get a bunch of different tools to add to your tool belt, and then you form the type of cop you're going to be from FTO training. You learn the basics. Do you agree, Chris? Absolutely. Absolutely. You agree with that? Okay. So I mean oh, yeah. there's there's FTOs, there's FTOs that I that I worked with that were horrible cops. They were horrible cops. They were one they were one direction, they were, you know, narc guys, they were traffic guys. They didn't they didn't have that that big gamut, that big umbrella of, of being into into a bunch of different different dynamics of police work but it was one of those kind of things where i took a piece of each of those and it could have been attitude their behaviors their mannerisms how they how they talk to subjects suspects all the tactics all that kind of stuff and then i formed my own little way of how i was going to be and what kind of cop i was going to be um, when i transitioned from anaheim as a reserve to garden grove it was a smoother transition than i thought it was going to be but still, I immediately went into it, and it was like they treated me like I was an inexperienced cop because I was a reserve. I was huh. a full-time scab labor, if you will. Okay, but I was still doing the job, whether I was doing it part-time or not. And the unique thing about my situation is, while I worked as a nurse, I worked twelve-hour shifts at the hospital, three twelve-hour shifts, and then I worked three twelves at the police department as a reserve. So I subsequently was working full-time hours at the police department and as a nurse at the same time. And I did that for almost six years. So I, I, I got a lot of experience. I got a lot of time on the street, if you will. And so when I went to Garden Grove, I needed to learn the Garden Grove way, but it was one of those things where I needed to also understand that I was the new guy and I was a rookie. But with FTO, you take that little piece of each one of them you put your mind as a sponge. You know, the academy were already stressed out. They basically paid us to get in shape. I mean, it's there's it, it, really no other way to put that. You learn you learn the basics of the laws and all that kind of stuff. But they pay you to get in, in shape. But when it comes to this mental illness or this tactical wellness, if you're gonna, if, if you will, is that if we can give them something in the academy to let them know that when they're having that bad situation or they have that bad call, that when they go home and they're feeling that. Don't go to the fridge and get the beer. Call their buddy and say, hey, can I talk to you about something? Or talk to their wife. I was married most of my time as a cop. 
But my last couple of years, I got divorced. Typical situation happens with, with cops and, and first responders. You know, we work a lot and whatnot. <clears throat> and then we end up, you know, getting divorced. But we don't want to take that stuff home with them. We don't have to talk about the specific call. But we can talk about the fact that, hey, I had a bad day. And this is kind of why. But I don't want to have them, you know, have to experience what it was that I saw at that call. But to be able to just at least put that little situation out and let it all bottle up inside, I think that's real important to have a to have that support system. But as far as what 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 I do and what I what I'm offering, and I, let me let me take that back. What my organization does is we really push the peer support and trauma response team dynamic, and and that's kind of a kind of a thing where peer support teams, every department that I'm finding in this country doing this for the last five years and talking to different agencies all over the country, they have peer support teams in, in place. But the dynamic of a peer support thing is if you think about it is when you have the incident and you have the critical incident that happens, there's a 24 to 72 hour time frame that that debrief, that stress debrief has to happen. That's very important. And it kind of goes back to what I said earlier is that in the early years, in my early 90s as a rookie, meeting your buddy at the coffee stop saying, hey, stop being a little bitch and let's get back in the fight. It's time to finish out the job. You know, that's not debriefing it. That's not fixing it. Because all that does is push all that stuff down and bottle it up for the next call. And it prevents you from, you know, speaking out about something else that may bother you on the next incident or the next incident and not further. And that's that's why I wanted to touch touch on this so much is because, you know, it's it's something that, you know, once we feel it's kind of if you get yelled at as a kid about saying something or expressing something, you don't say it again. So the same thing when it comes time for the career. And, you know, Chris, Chris and I were you know talking about what you just touched on as well. In regard to, you know, when we come home, you know, an incident that we may have, you know, ran into today that is really like laying heavy on my mind and on my heart, you know, not releasing that to them or not being able to have, you know, that support on that side. You know, it's the we have to do that. We have to, you know, be able to have, you know, that because it's the support that's closest to us, you know, right. and, you know, and the, the same thing with, uh, you know, we had a conversation the other day in regard to, you know, instead of, you know, you having to reach out, I, I had John Hall on, he was a guest on as well too. And, you know, he's active law enforcement and, you know, we were talking about reaching out in regard to mental health or if, you know, something is bothering us. And it's the, you know, agencies across the nation, you know, something has to be put in place. That's why I was, you know, kind of, you know, talking to you in regard to, you know, the training that you offer is there some kind of, you know, something that can be implemented in? Because what we need to see more of is the superiors or not even just the superiors, but having somebody in each agency that would call you in there just for a buddy check. Oh, hey, Mike. Hey, Chris, I just want to, you know, just, just to see how all officers are doing rather than us having to go in there, you know, in the door saying psych on it or whatever the case may be. But having that buddy check, you know, in the institution, whether it's like right after roll call or, you know, at some point, you know, throughout the week, biweekly, monthly, you know, just to check the mental health and the wellness, you know, of the brothers and sisters within each agency, you know, so. Yeah. And, 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 and there is those things in place to a certain extent to where 
there's counselors, there's a department psychologist that is available for those kind of things. There's, there's their peer support counselors for their peers that go and they do that. We talked a little bit about brotherhood at the very beginning of this. The fear that misnomer is that, you know, you talk to that guy or girl that you work at your department about something in confidence and you've got to believe that they're not going to run and go and make that a great story around the department. Okay. There's an old saying in police work, we never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Um, and it's one of those kind of things where if someone's struggling, you know, and then you go and you get in a group of these brothers or sisters together and they start talking about that person struggling. Okay. Now there's an embarrassment thing. There's a gossip. There's all of that kind of stuff. But then there's also that other misnomer is that if me as the officer who's struggling with a particular incident or something that happened at work, if I come forward and all of a sudden say, hey, that call kind of really messed me up. And now there's that misnomer or that, or that fear that if I do that, I'm going to be judged by my department. I'm going to be automatically put on admin leave and pipe in, Chris, if you, if you disagree with something, please. Um, and I'm going, to be, I'm going to be alienated. And then if I don't recover from this situation, it's kind of goes along the lines about, about the departments not wanting to identify these things, otherwise they own it, is that if they let me go, as a result of this situation or my PTSI or my struggle and not being able to recover, they're going to now take my identity away because now I'm going to get an identification and a badge, but they're not going to give me a gun to carry because I'm no, I'm no longer safe enough to carry a gun. But guess what? How many cops on the job today only have one gun, right? So, you know, the mindsets there is if, if I got something stuck in my head that, I'm not feeling good and I'm struggling with something and my department just basically dumped on me and said, you know, bye, you know, we, we, we no longer need your services anymore. You're not getting checked on by the guys that you're seeing every day. You're not getting, getting that buddy check. Like you said, um, your administration sure isn't doing it because now you're off the books out of sight, out of mind. And this is kind of along the lines of something that happened when I, when I fully retired the first time because I went through a medical retirement. And for two years, I had like little or no contact from these guys that were my brothers and sisters there. <laughs> I have a nickname that, or, or not a nickname, but it's a thing that guys that I worked with that would call Mike Zanito would give the shirt off his back, would do, do whatever it takes to help other people all his adult life. And they used to call me, I say, I'm, I'm caring to a fault. Okay. I'm a godfather to two guys one at Anaheim and one, one at Garden Grove to their kids, okay? I'm that guy. I, I am that guy that will, that will give the shirt off his back. And I'm carried to a fault because I'm not worried about boundary. I'm not worried about the consequences if I go and help someone. If I feel in my heart that I'm doing the right thing, I'm going to do that. But it's one of those kind of things that when I went through that two years of that emptiness, I didn't have that brotherhood anymore. And that's where, that's where the light really went on. You asked me about you know, how long that brotherhood and all that. Well, I didn't identify it. But then when I looked back at it after that, after being retired, I looked back and said, you know, the transition was almost 10 years before that, where guys would, you know, you're cool with everybody at work, you have a little snack and briefing, and it calls and that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're out, out of sight, out of mind, and you're gone. The brotherhood's gone. Well, can I uh, jump in? Can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Yeah, go I ahead. know the mask mask is kind of killing me here. So, um, 
what I figured out when I retired was that uh, I'd go back and I'd, I'd talk to the guys and they would they would take me on board, but I could tell that there was there was like a, a hesitation in how they wanted to talk to me now. And I think that part of that was because they don't want to hear how great it is for me now that I'm free of all the bullshit, you know. Um, you know, I'm living my best life, I'm living at the beach, and they don't want to hear about it because they're still stuck in the – and, then, you know, a lot of these guys – I was on a senior squad, of course, when I left at 20 years. The – I think our junior guy had 18 years on when I left. Yeah, no, I, I and I yeah, and I totally get that. Senior guys for the most part, and like so you these said, guys are you're living the dream. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and you know they're they're at that stage in their career where they're like, all I can do is just all I want to just get out of here. You know, I mean, I don't want any more part of this. I got to get through my drop program, be done. Uh, we're we're thrilled to death that you're you're having a ball out there and whatever you're doing, but um, we really don't want to hear about it. You know, so I I kind of took away from that that. You know, I'm, I'm no longer part of that group. You know, they're not depending on me to save their life, and I'm not depending on them to save my life. So you, you kind of lose that. You lose a lot, a large part of that brotherhood, not only with your with your squad, but with your own personal identity, you know. And then, and then having to face the, the idea, because the, the thing that hit me really hard was, you know, knowing that I don't have the ability to, to go hands-on and chase bad guys anymore which only lasted for about five minutes, but I realized I'm like, <laughs> yeah, do I, do I even want you anymore? Of course, you know, and then when the first time you're at the grocery store and you see something going down, you're like, wait, nope, I'm not that guy anymore, you know, and, and then nobody knows that that's what you did for so long. And the truth of the matter is what I had to face for myself was nobody even cares. <laughs> I mean, as shitty as it is to, right. to face that, nobody gives a that's shit. That's a sad truth though, it was. That's, that's the same truth, though. Because, really I mean, is, you know? when, you, when you work as hard as I did and you want to be, you know, you want to be that guy all the time and then you don't have it anymore, it's like, uh, well, now, now what do I do? Well, now you do exactly what I'm doing. You live your best life someplace else, you know? So, yeah, see, uh, it, 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 you kind of, you kind of, no, go ahead, finish that. Finish what well, I just wanted to, one thing I want to touch on, uh, rewinding a little bit, talking about the, uh, um, Talking about the PTSI and the stressors of, of the job, I think that uh, we do have plans in place, which are great. And don't get me wrong, uh, correct me if I'm wrong with this whole thing. But what for me, what I've seen and from my own personal experiences on the job and after, it's always been reactive. And we're very, very non-proactive about these kinds of things. I think if we have something in place, because I mean, I know you guys all know this. I mean, it was like 60 hours of firearms training and four hours of wellness training. I mean, what are we doing all day long? We're not shooting people all day. We're talking to people all day. So, obviously, the balance is completely way off. So, anyway, that was my whole thing on that. So, no, you're and you're and you're right on. You're 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 actually touching on. <clears throat> you're actually touching on some stuff that, where my organization is is really thinking about that that line is that, if you think about, you if you think about like the military, for example, okay. And I don't know, I don't know what your military background is. If you guys, okay. So for the military, we go to boot camp. We basically learn how to be a Navy guy, a Marine, an Army soldier, whatever service we join. Okay, we do it for eight to ten weeks, whatever it is. 
Okay. You learn, you go through training. Then you go to your school for your specialized school. Then you go and you continue to constantly train in that. If you go to combat, you get sent to your unit. You go in combat. Then when it comes time for you to get out, the transition period, it's a joke. It's a complete joke. Okay. Police department, what do you do? You do an exit interview and maybe they have a retirement plan <laughs> if your wife plans it for you, right? <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's a joke. So touching on with my organization is that I don't just focus on first responders. I go even further back to the veterans because where do veterans go when they get out of their military service? EMS, fire, police, all those jobs, okay? And in order to get hired as a cop, they can't come back from Afghanistan with PTSD and go test and get hired as a police officer. Right. If there's right. any mention of that, they're not going to be able to. So what do they do? They push it down. Right. And they they basically make whatever they need, need to make happen to get that job, to get that badge, and get that uniform. It's it's not a It's not a bad thing, but it's something that this is why it's important for them to look at it on the entry level point because they need to prepare for that because there's going to be things that are going to trigger that are going to happen that can happen their first week just their first hour that they're on the job or five ten years from down the road okay so you find something that's going to be a way to deal with that before it happens to prepare yourself kind of like with fto training they tell you about you know try to do read body language and you know head on a swivel 360 you know 360 all the time you know, eyes in the back of your head, always, you know, always on, you know, hypervigilant, whatever, whatever terms you want to throw out there. But we get those guys that get in there and they have their incident and they knock it down. If they're on probation, that's a whole other animal. They don't want to say that they're having struggles because guess what? Probation, why? We don't need you anymore. And they can do that with no reason. Okay. They call it the terms Luby. No longer need your services. Hey, Mike, let me ask you a question on that. I know uh, Michael and I talked about this, uh, I think it was two times ago. Um, somebody asked me, it might have been you, Mike, I'm not sure, I can't remember who asked me, but anyway. Um, so my really nasty last critical incident I got to 2016, uh, somebody asked me if I had had that same incident with a year on, how different would my reaction have been versus when my 18th year on? And that was a fascinating question to me. And I was like, wow, I never really even thought about it. Because, I mean, don't get me wrong, I had three, actually two critical incidents back-to-back, year on and two years on. But they really weren't that big of a deal in, in the bigger scope of things. Right. Um, so I, you know, I kind of dealt with them as they were. And it wasn't until my 18th year, like I said, when I got in the, the really bad one, when it wasn't, and I, I obviously knew already that it wasn't just that incident. It was all the other combination of all the other bad stuff that I had seen. But again, if I had had that one major thing where it was a really nasty gunfight, officer ambushed, officer killed, uh, all of that with that first year on, how much more resilient would I be now? Or how much less able to cope with that would I be now? You know what I mean? So. Yeah, and that's huge. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to, I was going to touch base on this with Mike is because, you know, with what he's seen being a medic, you know, again, that's not something that the normal human being is going to be exposed to or even witness in their lifetime. And then the same thing with law enforcement. You know, not every law enforcement officer is going to, you know, have a critical incident or be a part of, you know, an officer involved shooting. So, you know, 
when Mike, you know, his provisions, his organization of the provisions, you know, how much of that, and again, you, no matter how much training somebody receives, you know, can you really ready someone for that type of moment? But in the same sense, like you just, you know, said, Christopher, to where, you know, the, the difference between the first involvement and the second, you know, it may be a different level of intensity, let's just say, but, you know, mentally being prepared that, and another thing I want to kind of talk to you about as well, Mike, is that, you know, Chris during one of our broadcasts was talking about how, you know, one of his buddies in Phoenix or over in Arizona, you know, made the comment that they're never going to, they know that they're never going to draw their fire. So, and again, and that's why I wanted to, you know, have you on here and kind of discuss this because, you know, part of that preparation is going to see if somebody, you know, mentally would, you know, not necessarily like take a life, but still draw firearm and be mentally prepared, emotionally stable enough to discharge firearm. Before, before COVID and before George Floyd, that would be a whole other situation. Okay. That would be a whole other situation. And that question would just blow up. It's one of those things where you literally, kind of like what Chris just said about you know, how would you handle it when you were two years on the job or how would you handle it now that you got you know 18 years on the job? There's cops on the street working today that are second guessing pulling the trigger, even in a legitimately justified situation today. And that's why we have over 349 cops in this country killed since January 1st. Okay. That's one of the things, too. And I just want to, uh, Chris Gregoria just joined, you know, and he's law enforcement in the north, uh, northwest. And, you know, with what you just said, especially with how things have changed with George Floyd and everything else, too. You know, he's in an area, Chris is in an area that is kind of like heavily, you know, law enforcement's facing a lot of scrutiny and everything else. And it makes that. And one of the comments I made to Chris is, you know, how much more on your toes? I mean, every law enforcement officer, you know, we always know that there's going to be a risk with us going into every incident. But when you have those other stressors added on, as you just said, Mike, to where, you know, how much more on your toes is an officer going to be or how much more restrictive are they about second guessing themselves? Because that's going to be, you know, that hesitation factor, it plays a large role. So, you know, in what you're going into and mentally preparing somebody for that, is there a way to kind of, I'm not going to say really test for it, but, you know, kind of really kind of dig in. Is there a psyche valve that, you know, could actually distinguish whether, you know, because again, if you're partnered up with somebody and they really weren't mentally prepared to go out there and really be, you know, your partner as far as, you know, backup. And, you know, Christopher and I were talking about this as well too, where, you know, me knowing that my partner has my back no matter what, but if we have that partner that isn't going to discharge firearm and, you know, we're in an officer involved shooting, how much does that play into, you know, as far as that mental preparedness goes? Um, all right. Welcome, Chris. How you doing? So the preparation thing, um, it's huge. Okay. And again, with my organization, what my goal and my main mission is, and I and I don't sugarcoat things, okay? I, I was born in upstate New York, raised in Southern California. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. A lot of times I'll, I'll open my mouth and I'll have to put both in my mouth because I just, 
that just completely floors people, okay? But when I go and talk about these things, I give the disclaimer. I'm not going to sugarcoat these things. You're going to hear F-bombs. You're going to hear, you know, you're going to hear the streets and trenches perspective. And with my background, I can go into a hospital and talk to doctors and nurses because I worked in hospitals. I can go into the police department and talk to cops because I was a cop. I can go to a SWAT team and go talk. Go talk. I, was on, I was on the SWAT team. So I can go to these different dynamics and, and, and bring them relatable stuff. But my goal is not to tell them about what this great and all these things that I've done. Okay? Because I'll tell you, I'm very humbled to have been exposed to the things that I've seen. And so now my time is, is now my, my last life's mission today as an adult is I am now going forward to be able to educate and advocate for those who suffer in silence. I could easily go get, I have a master's degree in psychophysiology. I could easily go and get my PhD and go be a counselor. But guess what? I only get one patient an hour for six or eight hours in a day. But if I can go and speak at a conference full of chiefs of police from all over the country or a bunch of advanced officers doing training or a bunch of firemen and I go and I tell them about things that, you know, we're human. We put our pants on like everybody else. We wear a badge. We do a job. We're going to get screwed up by our jobs. We're, there's going to be something bad that's going to happen. We're going to get hurt. We have the potential of getting hurt. Along the lines of what you were saying, Chris, is that, you know, with, with uh, you know, this, this may not be a job for everybody. But it's one of those kind of things where if you tell them that and let them know, a lot of departments don't even have some of the simple peer groups, peer support groups, or trauma support teams that are updated to what it needs to be today. I'm not saying that they've had a, you know, Phoenix. Phoenix has a peer support group. They have a, they have a, a function for that. But I personally had lunch with the police chief about six months ago, and he tells me it's archaic. It's, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's out. It's, it's outdated. Okay? It, it, needs, it needs work. But in confidence, it's one of those things where once they identify that they have a problem, they're going to have to be able to own it and do something with it. Departments don't want to do that. So the education and advocacy part is get the word out to the masses and say, look, there's a problem in this business. There's a potential for you to get hurt or injured or something's going to happen to your psyche or your mental status. But it's okay to ask for help. Because we care about what happens to you after fact. Retirement, same thing, after you retire. That brotherhood's over with, like like Chris said, it was a big struggle about not being able to, you know, be, be see my brothers anymore. You touched on it, Mike, about you know, don't have anything in common or, or Chris, I'm sorry. You you don't you don't have anything in common anymore. We don't want to hear about your living the dream and stuff. Well, guess what? I tell people about my living the dream and how I moved out of California. And moved into <laughs> Texas, into America. Okay, I live in America now. I don't have a governor that 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 hates the people. All right, but I'm happy, and there's things that that I'm now doing in my life that make me happy. So I don't have to think about all those crappy things that I had to deal with when I was on the job. But there's guys like you said, Chris. There's guys that don't want to hear that. But I'm not doing it to throw it in their face. I'm doing it to let them know that hey. There is life after this job. This job doesn't have to absorb you and define who you are. It doesn't make so. So what? I was a, I was a Navy corpsman. Big deal. Saw death, all that kind of stuff. Big deal. 
doesn't make me any better than anybody else that I talk to. But it makes you ready to provide them insight. Exactly. And it, and it lets them know from the perspective of, is that I'm their peer. Even the chiefs. Chiefs were cops. They were cops once. Most of them forgot about when they were cops. But, you know, <laughs> they were cops once. All right. But it's one of those kind of things where I can give them relatable information and say, look, it's okay. There's a struggle in your department. And there's guys, there's guys that will go through their whole 20 years and never, you'll never even know there's anything wrong with them. And the week after they retire, they eat their gun. And I want to bring this up. So Chris Gregorio, you know, with him being, you know, in Northwest and he kind of touched us on it during the broadcast and everything else. So, you know, with, I'm listening. Let with, me let my dog in. I'm listening. It's okay. So, <clears throat> excuse me. With with those guys and them putting in 12, 15 hour days to where it's the, especially with the riots going on. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sorry. But especially with the riots going on to where they really don't have that time for that, that, that mental flush or that outreach, you know, talk to the fellow brothers and sisters, you know, at, so Chris, like, so if, if you want to touch on this on, and I know that you kind of, you know, keep your basket, you know, cleared, but, you know, within your department, how do you see other brothers and sisters, you know, finding that time to, you know, go talk to someone or really admit that they're having a problem because, you know, with what you do and what, I mean, the hours put in by, you know, the fellows, brothers and sisters, you know, the time itself on top of like the things that you see during that time has to weigh heavy on, you know, a lot of the officers. So, you know, what do you see the others doing to try to reach out or are they able to reach out or what are the superiors doing to do that buddy check and to make sure that everybody, you know, is at their very best. I guess I would say this is that um, the reality is that they're not, they're not taking care of themselves. Um, they're burying it. They are um, just driving on with the mission, right? That doesn't bug me. You know, it'll catch me later maybe. Um, but, you know, and, and to, to, to your point of the leaders and the administration stuff, like that, checking on officers, I don't believe that's a thing either. I, I think that they've got so much on their plates. That's just, they talk about it, but there's too much going on that they don't have the ability to reach down to the small level. So I think that it's more of a grassroots thing. Um, I reached out to, um, I was with somebody earlier uh, that seemed to be struggling and I started asking some questions and lo and behold, there's some issues. Um, and being part of our peer support uh, program here, I was able to, you know, work on getting some resources and things like that. So that I think it, it more relies on um, having that credibility within your peers uh, as Mike was saying, it's more of a peer thing than a leadership thing. Um, well, than, than, than a titled leadership thing, right? More than just the sergeants or lieutenants. Um, but people that have been around a little while and to recognize those things and to have the um, understanding and or courage to reach out, right? When we talk about these things on the street all the time, it, it's, it's, it's normal to uh, go to some of these crisis calls and be like, hey, man, are you suicidal? You know, just to, just to bluntly say it out like that. You don't want to beat around the bush. You're like, hey, man, you think about hurting yourself or you can, you're trying to kill yourself or what's the deal here? Um, and I think that we, you know, generally speaking, I think we kind of tap to toe tap around that uh, within our, our, our place of business um, because we don't we don't want to show that chink in the armor. We don't want to show somebody, hey, maybe you're struggling. Um, and, and I'm kind of an advocate of sometimes 
uh, I'll throw myself under the bus a little bit. Sometimes it's a legitimate thing, and sometimes, um, you know, you you kind of game it a little bit, and be like, hey man, you know, I'm I'm having a tough time or whatever, and you try to say these things so that you show some vulnerability to folks to so that they can feel more open to uh, opening up and sharing. Hey, I'm going to go see a counselor next week, um, something like that. And I think that it's more going to evolve to make it more normalized to start it in the roll call rooms, in the write-up rooms, BSing about it, um, without it having to be a serious thing where I'm actually, hey, um, I need to talk to somebody. When I can say, hey, man, that call that we were just on, man, that kind of messed me up a little bit, man. And, you know, this kid or whatever that, you know, gave CPR and it didn't work out. How about you, man? Am I the only one that's kind of uh, struggling with this? Um, and, and I think that that's the only way uh, from the senior vets to the new guys and gals to say, hey, that's okay to have these conversations and to say something actually affected you. Uh, I think it shows that you're human. It, 100%. And then, Mike, so, you know, with what Chris just said, you know, I guess, I guess the big question is, you know, Chris, you know, touched on it, you know, perfect as far as the, a lot of times when, you know, we let our fellow brothers and sisters know that, hey, we are vulnerable too, and, you know, things affect us too, but, you know, how do you drive into somebody that it's okay to talk about things or it's okay to admit that this just bothered you? you know? So, I mean, is it, is it part of, you know, your program or is it one of the things to where it's kind of always going to be up to, you know, the individual themselves to be ready to talk about or be ready to address, you know, certain issues? Critical incident stress debriefing or CS CISD. It is critical for every first responder element, dynamic, whatever company, even in the private sector. It, it is it is critical to this whole tackling this mental mental wellness thing. It, it's critical. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. It doesn't take a PhD to even be able to tell you that. And Chris just kind of hit the nail on the head. You know, it's it's more peer related. Okay management doesn't need to be involved in it okay in fact we strongly my organization strongly discourages management to be involved in it because people will talk more freely and open if they're not in fear of being judged or being alienated or being identified as a problem child now okay so when you do the critical incident stress debrief it's critical that you do it within 24 to 72 hours not an hour after the incident happened, not the night when it's an officer involved shooting and the DA shooting team clears, you know, clears your station. And now you go talk about what just happened. No, your adrenaline's all still, you're still all, all those endorphins and still going up. You don't go to the bar and go, you know, go get shit faced with your buddies and go have a cocktail. You know, you go home. If you got a family, go home to your family. If you need to go take a drive, fine, go take a drive. But that critical incident stress debriefing needs to happen on the peer level, but every single person involved in that call or that incident needs to be involved. And that includes the dispatcher who took the phone call, the forensic specialist who came and took fingerprints or took pictures of the scene, the handling officers, obviously. Okay. And then you have to have a facilitator. And if it's, if it's a police department, most of them will have a peer support person that'll be there. And there's, five simple rules that you want to do that you set that stage for, for the, the group. And they're, they're very generic, 
and each department, depending on how they want to handle it, they can they can kind of branch out for those five five things. But it's one of those things where you make it clear that no one in the room is going to be judged. It's your chance to basically talk about how that call or that incident affected you and what you did to deal with that effect. Okay. And then you go from there. The facilitator, let's say Chris is running the is running the peer this peer group. Chris is going to be doing nothing but focusing on being the moderator, being the person that's going to be basically, if someone says, you know, like, oh, why are you being a little bitch? You know, why are you, why are you crying? Why Chris is going to be the one to stop that. Chris is going to be the one to basically put that person that's that's doing that on notice. Say, look, this is not that kind of place. We don't want to judge it. If you have a sergeant, a lieutenant, a captain, yeah. Chris, you have something? No? Trying to pick my phone. Right, I'm getting ready to uh, get ready to exit my train here. I want to pick up this conversation, but uh, really good stuff. But uh, I got to buy out really quick. I'll try to get back on as soon as I get home. So okay, uh, yes, sir. But yeah, thanks so much, guys. Appreciate yeah. it very much. Cool. Always, thank right, you guys. for joining. Right. I think we're right thanks. thanks. All right. So, so then you got um, the thing where the the peer the peer support is going on. They're talking about the incident. You're not doing it to rip off the bandaid and re, re, you know, rehash that, what just happened. But it's a chance for raw emotions to come out. It's a chance for someone that is struggling with that incident to talk about what it is. And it's relatable because you've got the dispatcher who took the call in there. You've got the supervisor that showed up, okay? And the supervisor is also may or may not be struggling. But part of those five rules that you got to put down is that this is not a judgmental place. This, nobody's going to be judged. Nothing's going to be happening. But also the facilitator of that group needs to be looking at body language, needs to be looking and watching around the room of the people that are in the room that aren't saying anything, that get emotional about what they're saying or, 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 or you know, pouring out their emotions and, and feelings. And then after it's over, go to that person and say, hey, just want to make sure you're okay. Here's my number so you can call me. Here's, here's a way to get in touch with me. Or do you have a support system to go talk? To somebody and then, do, do, do you make it does the moderator make it to where everyone has to share i mean i, I know you're saying like kind of watching the body language to see about individuals that aren't like speaking up or anything but do you try to make it to where the moderator at least goes around the room and i'm not going to say forces people to speak but you still want to hear everybody's take on what had happened and things like that so i mean is that something the moderator controls to make sure that it's done or they kind of feel it out or what are your suggestions on, you know, upholding those five rules in the, in the, in the critical incident dynamic in the theory behind it is that you want to make it a comfortable environment that if anybody in that room is struggling, anybody in that room can talk, anybody in that room can say exactly what they want to say. If they want to say that call really fucked me up and they've never said the word fuck in front of you, you know, like, Oh my God, like, that really, that, you know, that's, it, it, it's human nature for us to react like that, but it's an opportunity for those people to say what they got to say, what's on their mind for the facilitator or the moderator to say, Hey, okay, let's go around the room. Does everybody have anything to say? I personally don't like to run those. There are some that I've been in where they, you know, the moderator says, okay, here's your two minutes. Go ahead and say whatever you got to say. I don't like that. I've been in ones that are, that lasted 15 minutes. I did one in uh, Chicago about a month and a half ago. They actually asked me to come in and do one. Six and a half hours this thing went. There were 17 people in the room. Six and a half hours. We took breaks. 
because we needed to take breaks. People were just going crazy. But it was an officer involved murder-suicide. Okay? And it was one of those kind of things where it was it, it, it was just, it was an age, a smaller agency, and it hit home a lot of people. And those 17 people in the room, 13 of them talked. The other four didn't really have anything to say. They kind of just sat there and just kind of let, let things happen. But it was one of those kind of things where you just kind of give the time. Now, there are going to be times where people are going to talk and just talk and talk and talk and talk. That's where the moderator comes, kind of comes into play and whatnot. But you want to give those people an opportunity. That's why it's so important to not do this too soon, like within, you know, an hour or two or three or four hours of that, because the adrenaline still, or too late. It's better to do one and not do one if it's late, but it's better to do it between that, and it's recommended between that 24, 72, 96 hours max kind of thing. Because then it's still kind of fresh, and the emotions are still kind of raw. You don't allow any alcohol, so if someone's been drinking that night, you know, you need to, you know, maybe maybe pull them aside and say, hey, you know, you, you've been drinking. It's probably not a good idea for you to be there, that kind of thing. And it's not to alienate them. It's just you don't want to have – you want to have them raw. You want to have them, you know, sober and clean and, and, and ready to focus on what needs to be done. All right. And then so after, after the initial, do you do follow-ups, especially if, you know, being a moderator, again, because you're able to – I mean, your whole focus is on – the well-being of everyone in the room, watching the uh, watching their mannerisms, you know, watching, listening to the tone and everything else. Do you do follow-ups with that? Do you suggest the follow-ups, or do you just kind of do a buddy check on the ones that you felt were kind of really bothered by the incident? You know, what, what are your suggestions on that? That's a tough one because you, as the moderator, um, you're kind of watching the whole room and listening to everything that's being said. But it's one of those kind of things where you unless you personally know these people, like dispatchers, for example, we talk to dispatchers on the computer most of the time. You know, we don't, we don't go and have barbecues. The dispatchers, we, we may see them at a Christmas party, that kind of stuff. So we may not really know their personality all that much because now we're face-to-face -face with them. So a follow-up thing with them could be threatening to them, me as the officer or as the peer, the peer person basically coming to them. It's like maybe now I'm trying to signal, sing, single them out. But when you're moderating and you're looking and you're picking up on that body language, it's one of those kind of things where, and one of the one of the number one rule is everything you say in the room is confidential. The only time it's ever going to get out is if you come in the room and say, I'm going to go home and I'm going to kill myself. We can't ignore that. We, we, we can't just like, just like any, any other street cop, someone says they're going to kill themselves. You got to do something about it. You, you have to, you have to have some kind of an action. But the body language of someone that says, hey, I'm going to go home and kill themselves, be like, you know, no, I don't want to talk. I'm, I'm fine. You know? And they, some tears coming down their face. Or, yeah, I'm fine. You know, just, just nonchalant or whatnot, whatnot. You watch those and you see how their mannerisms are. But the follow-up part is would be more like, okay, pull them aside, say, after the fact and say, look, I just want to make sure that you were able to talk about everything and you were able to get everything off your chest you needed to talk about today. Here's my name. Here's my number. Here's my card. Call me if you got something else you want to talk. And I'm going to check up. I'm going to check up on you every couple of days. You okay with that? And then you kind of just let them, just kind of let them go with that. It worked. That works for me. It may not work for Chris and his department, but that works for me. And it's worked for me when I've done these other ones, because then that opens up that door and it shows that person Instead of me being in charge of that group, it shows me now 
humanizing myself as now I'm a person who really cares about what happened to them after this critical incident we just went, the debriefing that we just went through. So now they matter beyond of beyond just that that debriefing. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. You know, and and then Chris, you know, on one of our broadcasts actually shared, you know, he was on his way home, you know, and he and another officer, you know, happened to, you know, come by an auto accident and everything else like there. And they, you know, stopped to help the individual and you know, they ended up dying in their arms and everything. And, you know, Chris shared his number, his name and number with the guy that, hey, you know, reach out to where, I mean, it, it is critical. And I'm glad you just said that too. Like, you know, being the moderator, it's the same way to where, you know, Chris, it was a blessing that he was able to kind of pick up on that that gentleman, that officer's, you know, mannerisms and, you know, maybe their tone or just the way that they're acting. You know, hey, you don't have to talk now. But hey, here's my number. The same thing with moderating that group to where, you know, you see that one individual, hey, especially in a group setting, because you're, you know, nine times out of 10, you're going to run into that individual that really isn't comfortable about talking about it, you know, in the group setting per se, but they do want to talk about it. You know, so being able to pick up on that, you know, it's vital and it's important. So it's, and then, you know, Chris touched on it as well, too. And I know Chris's passion about, you know, making sure that, you know, mental wellness and everything else is, you know, at the peak. And yeah, the other the other problem. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, Chris. We can't hear you. No volume, Chris. No volume. Nope. No volume. There you go. Can you hear me now? Yeah, there you go. Okay. Sorry about that, gents. It came unplugged. Um, two things is, uh, one, I think that as far as the SISM stuff, we tend to focus on serious incidents where there's an OIS or some baby fatality or something like that, not just necessarily the things where there's a horrible DV and maybe some grown, you know, some gangbanger shooting or something that we generally seem to uh, minimize uh, the emotional toll that it has. And I think uh, to your point, Mike, that we need to have those things. We need to normalize that on more than rather just these macro uh, type of incidents and start bringing it down to a lower level. And then uh, to piggyback on what you're saying, as far as reaching out, um, I the SISM portion, I think is fantastic. It gives people kind of a group setting for whoever's involved in this thing. And I love your idea of having the dispatchers and everybody that's involved in that, because uh, I think that's important. I was on a call earlier this morning where a dispatcher said that, you know, they don't get to see these things, but I almost think that it's even worse for them because they go to the worst places in their head. Their imagination takes over whatever these scenes must be like. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's a super critical piece. Number one it goes back to normalizing it being able to show that emotion for the the example that Mike gave where a guy's just like, I'm kind of fine, but I'm tearing up a little bit. And maybe he is or he isn't, but at least they're being vulnerable enough to show you that they have that emotion, right? And then you can start to address that. And if it's something that's not going to happen in that SISM session, I don't know. I think, you know, you were saying, Mike, it kind of depends on how you do those follow-ups. That's kind of just an evaluation period, right? Now maybe I can take you off the side. Hey, brother, I'm here for you. Here's a number for somebody else because we're not going to fix any problems in those things, right? We're just kind of processing, helping people process this situation, this uh, this call that they were on, rather than trying to help them in any way, uh, so that we can get them. Like I said, talking to somebody earlier, recognize something, and I got them some numbers to uh, be able to talk to somebody else. And I'm very happy to be very good friends with this person, but understanding that there's so much dynamic stuff that's going on in their professional and personal life that maybe not even be open to as good friends as we are to open up to me in the most vulnerable ways. 
right you're and you're gonna and you're gonna get you know instead of letting it bottle up if you don't have it then what's your out alcohol sex addiction porn all that gambling all that, yeah gambling you know cheating on your spouse all that all that crap that, that is not healthy because what is it it's band-aid therapy it's not self-destruction it, 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 exactly it's self-destruction because what are the three things in police work the three b's booze broads and bills okay <laughs> with mental health it's it's all of those things but it's on a it's on a a, a magnified schedule or, or a scale i mean it's it like catastrophe even worse um and it's one of those things where if you don't have an out a vice and i don't mean alcohol in that i mean it's going to the gym is still it's not enough pumping iron all that sure it's great for healthy and all that kind of stuff but and we touched on it very early very early in this in this podcast is that what is something that we can do to to basically so you have you have a you have a vice and you have an out okay so what is it what is it that we can do to um make it so we don't struggle with it as much well it's it's simple stuff as uh self-care real important self-care you know obviously the water the diet you know exercise that kind of stuff and whatnot but having outside vices outside of the police department so you don't let that whole that job self-absorb you and 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 just i and, and force yourself to identify who it is i had two rules i got into when i got into police work it was going to be fun and i was going to look forward to going to work when it wasn't fun anymore and i didn't want to go to work anymore i needed to i needed to get out and find something else to do if it was five years 15 25 whatever but the, the day that happened i needed to get out because now my mind's not in it my heart's not in it anymore and that's when i'm i'm a danger to the job i'm the danger to my brothers and sisters i'm a danger to myself and then guess what my kids get to you know grow up with no dad and that's not okay okay the self-care thing it's critical and chris chris hit the nail on the head you don't have self-care you can't help anybody else you can't you can't even begin to be there and be supportive of anybody else until you have your own self-care get your own shit together first okay which leads me into the next thing codependency has no place in the mental wellness arena okay there are so many people out there in my military career and my police work there's so many counselors that i would go and talk to and they were really young a lot younger than me none of them had any police experience nursing experience or whatever it was that i was talking to but guess what they had a really nice wall of certificates and <laughs> that they had all right the va is a really big one the va has these guys that weren't in the military that are doing counseling for veterans that are suffering from ptsd and that right there is killing the veteran community because they don't have the experience they don't have the relatable um compassion if you will chris is a very passionate guy you mentioned that he's, he's he does the peer stuff the way he does he's a young guy though okay Chris isn't going to have all the answers. I'm an older guy. I'm not going to have all the answers. The minute we know everything, it's time for us to go. Let God take us and it's all over with. I'm constantly learning. Okay. 
Another nickname, Ikea. I know everything, asshole. Uh, <laughs> because I'm always, I would always say, I would always have the last word, okay? But a lot of times I would say what I felt and other people would come up to me and go, man, you had the balls to say what I've been thinking. Kind of like the long, long, not to get the political, but, you know, everybody says Trump said what, you know, majority of the country felt, okay? But it's one of those kind of things, I'm that guy that will say what's on my mind. So when I do these talks and I talk about things and push this critical incident stress debriefing, I tell them, I said, look, it's important to have this dynamic and then you can branch off of it. But the base is there. The base is here. You guys, you guys do it a similar way. Your, your department, Chris, you kind of touched on it. Okay. The follow-up thing is real important, but, but then being that moderator and sitting there and going, okay, these three right here said a whole bunch of stuff they're probably going to be better at recovering from this incident than these four over here. So now I got to focus and, and figure out what, how I'm going to approach these four over here and go talk to them afterwards. And they may be, you know, screw you. I don't need anything. I'm good. You know, just I, the sergeant said I had to go or they were going to give me days off. Let <clears throat> me to the shrink. Okay. You still want those guys in there. Because then you can identify that there's a problem. So when you see them a week later, it's like, hey, dude, how you doing? How was your days off? Or how was your vacation? And that little stuff right there might open the door for them to talk. Agree, Chris? Yeah, very much so. And, and I think that uh, on the opposite side of that is sometimes it's super important to say the things that nobody else is wanting to talk about. But when you're talking about the peer support thing, sometimes it's good to just have a talk, not say much of anything, and then just sit here like this. Listen. And not say anything, right? Because yeah. it might take two or three minutes for them to be, to crack. But, you know, sometimes they're looking for the easy way out of these things, right? And what's the easy way out of these things? For me to start running my fat gums, right? But if I just sit here and I look non, non-judgmental, I just look, hey, man, I'm here for you. Young lady, I'm here for you. At some point, the uncomfortableness will beat them, right? Without having to do much of anything. The uncomfortability of just sitting there in silence, hanging out outcomes man my life sucks right now and then you know they, they pop the top and then it just comes out like a waterfall um it, but to, to the what mike's saying the credibility of the follow you have to consistently do that right because with cops we're a weird bunch once you break that you'll never get it back and then you've screwed it for anybody else that might want to help these individuals right they're done hey this person said they were here for me but you know they called me twice and that was it you know um after my incident, uh, somebody called me every once in a while and very disingenuous. Uh, and it got to the point where you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm good. Uh, all right, bye. Right? So there has to be credibility built up in there. So it's almost like you had it on their calendar to make sure that they followed up with you. It's just a follow Yeah, kind of. You know, uh, but you have to, I think that you know, another poor, uh, super important part of it is that you have to pair somebody with the right person. Kind of what Mike was saying with the counselors. There's some of those people. Look, I talked to somebody that has no law enforcement experience, no military experience, and just naturally, my civilian encounter made me, it, it helped me come to resolution with a lot of my military stuff that I didn't even realize was necessarily there. And it just happened very organically. Um, but that that's a very rare thing. There's a, a, a fantastic doctor down in uh, California near Chris, uh, Doc Shauna Springer. She's kind of hitting it big on the national level with the, the Marines and the SOCOM uh, uh, community. 
again, no relative experience, but she is so relatable. She's so open. She's vulnerable. And she just, she exudes uh, credibility through her pores without trying. You know, you get a lot of these people that try to pitch you, hey, I've done this, I've done that, or I've got this certificate or this doctorate. You're just like, okay, you're trying to oversell. That's like these guys that come back from the war or whatever, like, oh, I did all this stuff. 99%, I'm like, yeah, okay, buddy. Right. The more you try to talk yourself up, the less uh, credible you probably are. Not all the time, but but there's a, there's a large majority rule. Yeah, it's, it's, it, that just kind of goes hand in hand with, like you said, the credibility stuff is that, you know, when when we go and talk and I'll use an example, I was talking at a, a conference last August last year um, in, in Chicago again, and there was about 350 plus police and fire chiefs and it was a the national conference for basically uh, uh, EMS and first responder leaders, the leadership conference kind of thing. And I went in and started talking about how important peer support and the difference between a peer support team and a trauma response team is. And I kind of touched on that a little bit about how you can't put them together, but they can work together, but not be one, if you will. Peer support is for basically the people who do who do the work, who do who are involved in the incident. The trauma response is is basically to deal with that, and then also the dynamic of everybody else that was involved in that. Your victims, your family, your witnesses, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then to to, to take that dynamic and then mold it in together. Coffee break about an hour into the conference, I get two chiefs, one from the East Coast and one from the West Coast. One just the West Coast one happened to be from California, came up to me and says, you know what? There were a few things that you said there that we never even thought of to even having that, that dynamic. I walked away. I thought in my mind, I just saved two lives. Because I just had two departments that took what it was that I was trying to get my point across. And they're going to take it back to their department and try to do that. Whether it's successful or not, it did that. So it goes back to what I was saying about the counseling thing. I could go get my PhD and go be a counselor, but then I'm only going to talk to six or eight people a day. But if I go to a, a group of people or a conference and talk to a big dynamic of people, they take a little bit of everything like FTO program, take a little bit of everything of what I talk about and take it back to their departments and implement things. Now they're working towards a solution instead of just saying, we're going to reactionary. I think you said that earlier, Chris, is that, you know, they're reactionary. They're, they, you know, they, they, they don't plan ahead. In police work, we always plan and we're always thinking about, okay, if that guy comes out of that car with a gun, how am I gonna react to it? Well, if that guy comes out in a gun and sticks it in his mouth and pulls the trigger, how am I gonna react to it? Most cops aren't gonna think like that. Most cops are just thinking, oh, he's coming out with a gun, am I gonna shoot him or what am I gonna do? No, he's gonna put that muzzle of, his, muzzle of the gun, pull the trigger and it's gonna blow his brains out. Now, how am I gonna deal with it? I don't know. I wasn't trained that way. And we don't get that. We, we get 5150 and mental health training on how to, how to deal with a suicide person, but we don't get how to deal with us being that person with the emotion after that call. That makes sense. So we, we got We got to get, we got to get that information out somehow to say we're human. We're doing a job to be successful in that job. And after that job is over with, when all the adrenaline's over and all that that pump and that hype of us, you know, being that badass guy, that cop of saving the world, now we're de-escalating 
our lifestyle. And all those things happen. Heart problems, you know, emotions and asthma and all that, all that other stuff that we were kind of masking because we were in great shape. I mean, I gained 40 pounds after I retired. Okay. And now I eat donuts all the time. I didn't eat donuts as a cop. Didn't like them. Thought I was just kind of stupid. If I had a donut, I was like, I was cheating myself. Okay. But you know, we kind of let you kind of let yourself go after the fact because now, now it's not one of those things where people are relying on me to, to save them anymore or, or be there, be that, you know, that partner that's in good shape. But I have my own struggles. You know, now I'm not, now I'm not the cop doing that job anymore, but it doesn't, it never identified who I was. It, I never let it get, never let it get the best of me. So the codependency, I think I talked about. Can I touch on something there, Mike? Can Definitely. you said that you said that you've never let that happen to you? How did you consciously do that? Because I think that it's an inherent thing that somehow this cape, this badge, this gun belt naturally seems to take so many people over. Right? I'm, I'm with you. I, this is part of who I am. It's to a large extent, right? It's what I do but it doesn't describe everything about me. How did you find that for the people that are watching? How did you find that way? At what point in your career say, this is not going to define me? Because I think that's a huge part of the mental health capacity is not letting it define you. Yeah, I, and it, and it kind of goes along the lines of in this generation today. <laughs> Most of the generation today is getting into this, this business because it's a cool job. You know, driving around in the police car. Chase you know, bad guys. Like well, you, I, th I think you just touched it there. It's a job, right? For us, right. when you came on, you say, I'm going to spend a lifetime, a career doing this, right? It was kind of like a lifelong ambition. Yeah. Now you get these new folks who are like, I'm going to try this for a couple of years and see how I like it. And they like the paycheck and then they, you know, they go out and buy the boats and all that kind of crap and, you know, the house and get the wife and then they get a divorce and get wife number two or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, with what you said about how did I do it, you miss this in the first part of us is that, I started serving others at 17 years old when I joined the Navy. Okay. I joined the Navy right out of high school because I wasn't, I was that know it all, that IKEA, all right, that I know everything, asshole. That teenager that thought I knew everything, I didn't know nothing. Well, the thing that made me, that grew me and, and molded me into the person I am to the Mike Zanito I am today, and my family will tell you this, and my close friends will tell you this, is that the military saved my life. I would be that guy that'd probably be on probation or in jail or whatever, just because I, my mouth would get me in trouble. So I got my ass kicked in boot camp and and started doing my service and realizing that that was the path I needed to take. I started as a reserve officer when I was in my late 20s after I got out of the military because I worked as a nurse after I became after I was a medic in the Navy and got out and then worked as a nurse. So I worked part time as a cop because I absolutely loved being a nurse because I loved helping people. If I had sick people, if I had people that were dying and I got to save them, I felt great. I didn't feel good that I saved them. I felt good that I was there to be able to save them and use my expertise. Okay. I took the selfish part of it out. So when I went to work in my career as a police officer, like I was telling Mike earlier, is that, you know, when I started as a reserve, I was making 10 bucks an hour. My job, my badge still said police officer. I had four numbers. The regular guys had three numbers, but you couldn't tell the difference. I did the same job they did, carried a gun, all that kind of stuff for 10 bucks an hour. It wasn't about the money. Okay. When I got hired on to the police department, yeah, the paycheck was, was good and it was great, but it still wasn't about the money. Still bought my house, paid my bills, all that kind of stuff, but still wasn't about the money. It never was. When I 
stopped doing my police work, it hit me harder because I didn't miss, I didn't miss the job. I missed the fact that they took away my status when I retired to help people, to continue to be that, that, that helper. We all wear different hats. You know, we put on our dad hat, we put on our ball cap, we put on our, you know, our nurse hat, we put on our, our, you know, our cross on to, you know, to give last rights to the, the gangster that just got shot up in the neighborhood or whatever. So you, you find that way to understand that you're there for a reason. The two things I said, if it's no longer fun anymore and it's just, it's just a job, I need to, I need to get out of it because we, and it's not like we're working in a, in a real estate office and I keep saying, I don't know what it is about real estate. I just, I just keep throwing this out, but you can't just go get hired as a cop and be successful. Not everybody, not this job is not for everybody. Okay. EMS is not for everybody. Being a paramedic. I've, I've worked with lots of guys who were firefighters for their entire 30 years. They never were engineers. They never were captains. They never were medics. They just like being a firefighter because they didn't want to see the blood and guts and all that kind of stuff. They were still exposed to it, that kind of stuff. But as a cop, it's not, it's not for everybody. So once you identify that that job, that, that that career is your career, you're on the right path. But the minute you start letting those other vices take over, that's where you start getting the problems. That's where the stress has happened. That answer your question? Yeah, it makes sense. Because I, I think that whether it's the military or law enforcement or firefighter, uh, it tends to become who we are. And I guess not stop there, a doctor, a lawyer, something that's uh, somewhat outwardly serving. Take a look at that if you can see that. Okay, there you go, right? Exactly. And, and we allow that to be some sort of shield or cape or whatever you want to call it. And that seems to define who we are, right? And, and, and I know I missed the first part of this, but uh, it's very powerful talking about when you're done. And I don't care if you worked for amazon for 25 years once you've walked away you're no longer part of a club right as much as you hated going to roll call or turnout or whatever you wanted to call it the day that it's done you're like damn it i can't hang out with the boys anymore there's no there's, i ain't gotta listen to the sarge talk crap or <laughs> whatever you just you, you miss that part of it there's an addiction and, and to go back just a little bit too as far as like self-medicating i think one thing that we forget too is i in my belief that this job is also an addiction and i'll speak for myself that doing this job has been my self-medication for my military stuff. It has helped keep bad dreams and, and other things away. Uh, and when I wasn't working a lot or I'd go back on military status, which is a very low op tempo stuff in the reserves, you know, those bad dreams and things would come back. So, uh, you know, I've been in the army uh, since 1995. I uh, had a couple year break and I've been in the reserves ever since. I did uh, almost nine years active uh, and I could retire. But man, there's an addiction to it. Like I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to quit the club. Number one, I have too much fun at it. I feel um, like I still have an impact on my soldiers, right? I still can uh, mentor them and and try to do my little part for our uh, the military and our community to try to take these self selfish young kids and try to mentor them to be more selfless, uh, which is a hell of a challenge at times. But it's so rewarding, and it's like just not wanting to quit. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, it's and then any part of that, of what, you know, Chris just mentioned, and, you know, you, you mentioned yourself, Mike, to where, you know, it was Christopher Hoyer, you know, I kind of made the comment to him as well, too, that, you know, sometimes when we retire, 
you know, we're not necessarily just stepping out. We're, you know, we're jumping into another avenue where we're still in that same club per se, you know, but, you know, with, with your organization now, I mean, you know, you, you kind of expanded your club to where you're not restricted to the, you know, your respective jurisdiction any longer to where you get to go in all the different agencies. And, you know, like I said, you know, you kind of broadened your club. So, and it goes back to what you're saying as far as like when you were 17, like, you know, at the beginning, you were talking about how, you know, even before that, you had the passion about, you know, wanting to help others and being a part of, you know, <clears throat> the helping of others. So I think it's something that's been ingrained in you your entire life. So, you know, in that stepping out, like Chris just said, you know, that being addicted to the job to where with your organization, I mean, you're still carrying on, essentially, except you're also looking back on, you know, that phenomenal career you had the things that you were exposed to and, you know, taking what then was a trauma and providing it as a blessing to others because, you know, now you have all of this to give and there's nothing about being conceited. There's nothing about, you know, you feeling, oh, hey, I did all this. I mean, it's a blessing that you went through that. You know, what Chris is going through, what Chris is able to give to other individuals and things like that, it really is a blessing to where, you know, realistically, you're able to do more now for, you know, fellow officers, military, medics nurses by stepping out and creating this organization so you know how much of you know you having this organization you know plays into you know as chris just said that addiction of that you know being in the club per se right right yeah and, and it's it, the other thing is you know with i mean what, what have we been going through the last 18 months you know the COVID <laughs> stuff okay so you know, I told you dispatchers, I, I personally consider dispatchers first responders. And I love how that they're in the, they're in the middle of that flag back there. Yeah. Even though they, didn't, yeah, even though they didn't respond, they, they're, they're, they're part of it. They're, they're there, they're involved. Well, what are we, what are we dealing with today? COVID. Okay. <laughs> Nurses and doctors, they didn't sign up to take care of patients that are going to be in their ICU beds to die, to die alone. They didn't sign up for that. Just like the, the rookie cop, he didn't sign up to go and shoot someone at his five-year mark. He signed up to basically make a difference on the street and serve his community. So when those things happen, you gotta you gotta find that way to to work through that and and make sure that you know that you're gonna be okay and you can process that. The the thing today, you know, it's nurses and doctor suicides are up. The, the numbers are up. Um, I don't have the accurate numbers right in front of me, but they're up. They're happening even more now with this, you know, the vaccine thing. Last year's heroes, today's threat. You and how much, of that, how much of that do you think, you know, plays in part? I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, being unappreciated, but, you know, with the past 18 months and with COVID, the, the unappreciation really is there. I mean, you see a lot of individuals that were a lot of uh, hospitals and even offices that are discharging some nurses that are refusing to, meet certain criteria or guidelines right you know and you see so many of these nurses and these doctors that literally are saving lives and it's the the give back yeah a lot of them and it's the same thing what you were saying before like you know chris touched on it to where you know we don't sign up to this for the paycheck it's because you know we want to go out there and serve the communities in which you know we live and you know respective jurisdictions but in the same sense it's the you know that passion about helping individuals with nurses and doctors in this you know, past 18 months, I mean, they have been facing, 
I'm not going to say scrutiny, but I mean, a lot's been put onto their plate to where they're also witnessing it. And something that, you know, we as, you know, general public, we really don't see is how many forced instances to where with COVID happening, there's a lot of individuals that they want to help or a lot of individuals that could utilize their help. But a lot of those people coming into the doctor's offices, coming into the hospitals are being put onto the back burner because of that, you know, the overpopulation of COVID patients and things like that. But, you know, again, with them, they, they see so many traumatic experiences on a daily basis. You know, how much of that you think plays into, you know, like you just said, not being able to, you know, how many wellness checks were done on nurses or doctors, you know? I mean, every, I mean almost every day is a critical incident for them or they witness one every day. So right. there's a whole thing, there's a whole dynamic about it, you know, before COVID, they were going to work every day, doing their 12 hours, taking care of their sick patients and whatnot in, in the in the semi-controlled environment, if you will. Okay. When COVID happened, and and again, not to get political, you know, the big hype was is that there were people dying every day, hundreds of thousands of people that were dying every day, you know. Right. And you know, you get all these COVID beds that are all full and they're they're the staff's overworked and they're overwhelmed and they're they're undersupplied and understaffed and you know they're not allowing family members to come in and visit these people and now their last dying breath all they see is this nurse and nurses are you know they're young by 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 the most part you know you're not going to get the 60 70 year old nurses and and most of them were we're, we're leaving when all this stuff was happening. It's like, it's time for them, it's time for them to throw in the towel kind of thing. So these are all young people that are, that are like, they, they went to nursing school to basically help people. And then they didn't have, you know, they needed 200 ventilators that particular week and they only had 30. So now they're under, they're under equipped and they can't do it. So they take that burden on themselves and go home and go, I couldn't do anything about it. There's nothing I can do. So there's the homeostasis, returning back to where we are now. Nursing's never going to be the same after what we went through for 18 years. Just like police work is never going to be the same again. At least I won't see the change. I'll be dead and gone before I see a change of police work where cops are not getting the one-finger salute. They're getting the, you know, the wave. All right? I grew up in that, you know, I never got the, I always got the one finger salute. I, 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 I didn't grow up in a time where, you know, the cops were, were praised and all that kind of stuff. Unless it was little kids, you know, and they're running up and they seem silent. But I won't see that transition. Nurses are not going to, are not going to see that stuff either. And so it's one of those things where we got to figure out a way to find a way to tell those people that, as long as their heart and mind's in the right place and they're doing the things that they were trained to do and they're performing their job the way they were trained to do and they can lay their head on their pillow at night knowing that they did everything they could and they're still not okay, then let's talk about that and let's process that. Okay. And then do they, do they fall in the same guidelines as, let's say, like critical incident with law enforcement? I mean, with like with the nurses... You know, them seeing so much of it, I mean, and I, like you just said, you know, if they lay their head on their pillow at night and, you know, then they want to deal with it. Or, I mean, do you say that, wait, that, uh, you know, 24, 72 or 48, 72 hour period for them as well? Or, you know, at, at what point is it, 
beneficial for them to start talking about what they just experienced? I mean, do they let it process to see if there's something they can deal with? Or, you know, do they also, you know, apply that same window? I mean, is it like that all the way across the board, whether it's, you know, all first responders, basically, you know, law enforcement, EMTs, firefighters, everything else? Is that something that, you know, you kind of want to keep that same time frame to where, you know, you kind of let it process first and then see how, you know, you yourself are processing that said experience? One of my struggles as a nurse early on was I had a real difficult time being sympathetic or empathetic versus sympathetic and not personalizing things with my patients. It's, it's hard. It's a harder struggle to do that as a nurse because you're providing care as a police officer. You have to be empathetic and not be sympathetic because you'll let your guard down more times than not, if that makes sense. Okay. You still want to show the compassion that you're there. You know, you don't want to sit there. Okay. You know, you call this. So what? Some, somebody broke into your house. Big deal. <laughs> I looked at it from the standpoint is that if that was my house and my house got broken into, how would I want the cop to respond? Okay. Not go there and say, oh, it's just another bird report. Okay, what do you got? No, you can personalize it to the standpoint to where you show empathy and show that you care about what happened in that person's house. Okay. But as the nurse, when I lost a patient and I worked with pediatrics, I worked with, my, my focus was emergency room, pediatrics, and cancer kids. One of the big reasons why I got out of nursing was because the healthcare system basically took a crap and insurance was dictating how we were taking care of patients. We would get kids that would have the same exact debilitating cancer and we'd have three kids and two of them had insurance and the other one didn't. The one that didn't have insurance didn't get all the same cares. <laughs> same, let me say, same level of care, if you will. And that kid that didn't get it he suffered more. One of the ones that got all the great cares and all that because they had good insurance, one of those two kids died. I took that, took that to heart, took that home. One of the reasons why was that particular kid that I'm talking about, I had the same age kid at home. So it was hard to not personalize that and sympathize with that family of what they're going through because if that would have happened to my kid, I would have been that parent. See where I'm going with that? Whereas... The police department, you, and, and paramedics too. Paramedics, they, 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 can't, they can't personalize things too much either because they're there to do their job, okay? But they just see that patient when they get to the house, then take them to the hospital, they're done. The nurse sees that patient when they get admitted to the hospital and when they get discharged all the way through their care. So there's going to be a different dynamic of caring, empathy versus sympathy on that side. But we as humans, we have to find that line to where what's going to work with us to make us be able to cope. So with COVID, the homeostasis, returning back to where we were in nursing, is that we've got to still understand that there's only so much that we can do to fix this issue of COVID. COVID real. I'm not going to deny that. But it's nowhere near as bad on the gambit scale that it is right. being reported. We all know that. Not even close. Not even close. Not even, it's it's it, and it's you know it's 
it's unfortunate that we have to do that we're that we're fear-mongering if you will but nurses have to know that they did their job the way they're supposed to the way they're trained to and they did everything they could possible and the fact that the ventilator never showed up that's not their fault that's not their fault you know another thing too like with, with what you're saying and you know the reason why this is kind of important kind of like to touch base on you know COVID's really not as bad as it is you know marked up to be which you know chris and i touched on this during our broadcast to where the media plays a large role on all of this okay and it, and it goes into my you know what it is that you provide to where you know to making things seem okay to reach out to somebody you know it's the same thing to where you know the police being demoralized or you know shunned to where when you look at the real numbers like when we were talking about like the you know the fatal force incidents you know to where the, the number is minuscule like you know because i always use the 2019 numbers because it's the most recent on the uh the actual stats for you know the uh, chamber of commerce and everything else that you can actually pull the stats from but you know, to where 989 fatal force incidents out of 140,000 run-ins, that, that's, it's nothing. And I don't, I don't want to try to play on the death, but it's the same thing with, you know, the, the media pushing certain things to where they make it not okay. So, you know, law enforcement faces undue hardships by us civilians, you know, the very, you know, civilians and communities that they're protecting, you know, are lashing back out. Same thing with like the nurses and everything else too, to where, you know, not knowing it's okay to reach out or not having that media broadcast that, hey, you know, Mike Zanito and his organization, you know, Peacekeepers for Life actually offer the services for the nurses, you know, first responders, you know, things like that. It's the, the restriction causes more people to digress mentally, emotionally and everything else. So that's why I like to do what I do as far as that, you know, try to expose the reality and the truth behind everything else. But, you know, how do we get to that point to where even though the media feeds them, because you know how some people, I don't want to call people simple minded and people to take it the wrong way. You know, sometimes people will see something on the news and they take it for what it is. Oh, Hey, that must be true. You know? So, and then people become hesitant about reaching out to you, you know, um, trusting Chris and, you know, him responding to their call and things like that too, to where just when you were saying about how, you know, that, that kid, you know, you, you having a kid that same age or, you know, responding to a home and then like joining law enforcement is that, Hey, I know I got a family at home too. You know, I want to make sure that, you know, for my family's sake, if not everybody, every family's sake, that the community is safe, you know? So how much of that goes into, you know, with all the fake news going on and the media pushing things that really are irrelevant and it's putting that fear factor into a lot of individuals and, I'm not going to say it places more responsibility on law enforcement, nursing staff, and you know first responders in general. But you know how much since the, in these past 18 months have you seen the difference in individuals reaching out, individuals being responsive of services? One of the one of the big the big struggles that I personally see is that you know, people are afraid of being judged. People are afraid of being alienated. And this goes to nurses, doctors, I mean, police, fire, any EMS, any of that stuff. And Chris, Chris being a vet, I mean, he, he can understand the whole transition out of the military. It's a joke. You know, you go through boot camp, you go through all that stuff, they train you, get you ready to go fight, fight, kill, kill, 
you know, all that kind of stuff. And then when it's time to get out, they just kind of say, thanks, here's your diploma or your, or your honorable discharge and on to the next thing. No, no, they teach you how to write a resume. <laughs> oh, they do that now? Well, in, 2000, in 2004, they did. <laughs> they didn't do that shit for me. Let me tell you, they just said, hey, hey guess what? Here's your medical and dental record, by the way. I'm like, what? <laughs> All right, fine, whatever. So, so okay, good. So they got write a resume after 2004. Right on. So, but it's it's one of those things where if you, if you tell people, and again, this is like this is why I'm I'm so passionate about getting the word out is because I don't personalize it, and and and, and you know you guys know my resume, you've seen my resume, but I'm 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 just a guy, I'm just a guy, I'm 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 no better than anybody else. I mean, education, none of that. I, I'm just a guy that has been exposed and seen stuff and have gone through stuff, and and I've cried, I cried last week. I mean, I. Cried one one of the guys from uh, the one of the Marines that uh, that was in that unit that got killed in Afghanistan. Talked to the kid two weeks ago and he killed himself six days later. I cried, I cried. I talked to him on the phone. Okay, and it, and I, I took it hard. It, it 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 got me. It personalized me. But it's it doesn't mean I'm codependent. It doesn't mean it means I'm human. Okay, so when I go and I talk and I explain to people, and, and it's not. We check our egos at the door. I don't care if I'm talking to one of the one of the hardest rooms I ever talked to was at the FBI Academy in Quantico. I was I was like I was like, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm not gonna get, I don't I don't I don't hold a candle to any of these guys that are in here. And I'm talking to some guys that were spec ops, CIA guys, and they're you know they're special agents with the FBI and stuff. And I went with my dog, so my dog was like. Well, it depends on your definition of that. What's that? Oh. Somebody walking in the background. Oh, okay. Okay, so so yeah, so I'm, I'm sitting in there in that dynamic, and I'm going, "What am I doing in this room?" And I'm thinking to myself, "Well, I'm here for a mission. I got a mission. I got to get my word out. I got to I got to say that it's important to understand that we're all human. We all signed up to do whatever career it is that we did, whether it's basket weaving, whether it's teaching, whether it's you know." EMS, whether it's nursing, you know, whatever it is that we're that we that we signed up to do, that we signed up. There's a reason why we did it. We all have our own reasons, but we're human, and we're going to have emotions, and things are going to affect us in a certain way. It doesn't make us make us a bad person. It doesn't mean we're broken. It doesn't mean anything. That's why the whole PTSD versus PTSI, right? PTSD, shell shock, whatever you want to call it, it's an injury or an illness, and it can be fixed. It can be. It can be handled and it can be managed and you can recover from it very fine and have a fulfilling life okay i have i've seen it firsthand i've seen it firsthand not only in myself but i've seen it in hundreds of other people that i that i've dealt with in this last six and a half years and it's it's an amazing thing when someone who is struggling can come forward and say i need help something wrong with me Something's not right. See, and and with, okay? yeah, I mean, and, and with what you do, you know, because, you know, a lot of people try to categorize, you know, first responders. You know, you have your law enforcement, you have fire, you have EMS, paramedic, whatever the case may be. But, you know, first responder, even with nursing, you know, everybody's held to a certain standard to where, you know, again, that, that fear of admitting something is wrong. 
because of what's going to happen from administration. Well, you're not cut out for this job. You know, if you can't pull, you know, that dead baby from a fire or the garbage can or the dumpster or, you know, go in and, you know, have a, a, a victim that's been shot, you know, it's the that, that mental emotion that, you know, individuals have to deal with. That fear of talking about things, it's vital. And I love that's what you do in regard to, and, you know, you don't place a topic on it. It's first responders, you know, because it does affect everyone. And the dispatchers, they're the ones that are really overlooked almost 100% of the time to where, you know, and Chris touched on it, to where it's the, you know, they send somebody out there and like wondering like how bad the incident may be, but they also never get that resolved to wondering like what happened with that call. You know, if a life was saved, if a life was lost or, you know, what that, that proximate result was so you know they can they can have that range of emotions just playing in their head all night long because there's so many different possibilities of what, how it could have ended up you know yeah. and that's why it's just i love that it's like first responders because you know like nurses you know nobody thinks about that psyche valve that a nurse has to go through because of everything that they're exposed to on a daily basis you know? i did or, i did two i did two critical incident debriefings one was a bar shooting and I did another one after the Route 91 in Vegas. The Route 91 one was people who were at the concert. They're not first responders. They're they're not they're not anything. They're just moms and dads and you know sons and daughters that happen to see people get shot and they've never even said anything like that. They've never seen anything like that before. And this was this was it wasn't, I don't want to say it was a critical incident debriefing, but it was more of a an after, an after action, if you will, at a support group. And this, there was 200 people in this room that they basically had a chance for people to go up that felt like they wanted to talk about their experience there. And we had, we had, I think the number that we had was like, I think there was 13 people that were from Orange County that were affected by it. I'm not sure exactly the exact number, but, but there was 200 plus people in this room and we're talking about these things and about stuff like that. And, you know, there was there was very few dry eyes in this room. But when you start talking about things that was seen and what were experienced and what people were exposed to, they were like rehashing it. So they were just everyday people. But the room full of cops, you know, that went to this bar shooting that were there after after the fact and saw the the chaos and the carnage from what that person did. And then they see their partner that's down as a result of it okay now they've got to deal with that dynamic and then after the fact going to talk to the group of people that lost people in that particular bar shooting and talking to them again they're not trained they've got no you know they just they're just college kids you know they're just there they're human so it doesn't have to stop necessarily on first responders but that's that's where my organization focuses but we're still dealing with human people. We're and I think if, if we're honest with each other, I'd be clear. I don't think any of us are trained. We're trained to respond to the things. We're respond to deal with the threats. But tell me an organization, even currently, that preemptively trains how to deal with the trauma, Absolutely. how to process it. I, I think in that aspect, we're all equally untrained. We're all we're we're all peers. We're all well, peers. And counselors, you know, counselors don't you know they're not trained either yes yeah, they so, the, they the 
Yeah, they're not, they're not trained. And on top of that as well, too, it's kind of how you were just talking about how, like, you know, the 13 individuals were just, you know, the parents and everything else, too. And But I don't care if it's 10 people or 10,000 people. Not only is it going to affect everybody in a different way, you're going to have that many different viewpoints on what actually happened from each one of those individuals, you know, even the first responders, you know, because, you know, whether it's on the perspective on how you're standing and, you know, the view that you had of the incident or, you know, the direct reaction of how you perceived, you know, that person's actions, the mannerisms, anything else too, but, you know, how it affected you on the decisions that the other party made, you know, and again, personalizing to where even if, you know, I could take it more to heart that I watched somebody else lose a, a loved one than they did themselves, you know, like because I could personalize it about my own family or anything else like that. So, you know, processing things, you know, outside of, you know, just like first responders, because, you know, the individuals in that moment as well, too, you know, they, they have a heightened sense of that trauma, which is going to, you know, heighten that PTSD, PTSI, you know, from that point on. So, you know, and then also, I'm not going to say first responders communicating with, you know, the victims or the family of the victims and things like that, but I mean, to process everything like there it's just you know talking about it and being open to talk about it but again it is breaking that barrier of being comfortable talking about it, you know and that's why I, I can't stand where you know speaking out about something that's bothering you is demoralized nowadays or you know in like today's generation we uh, we can go on all day about you know that the softened generation that we're in today but you know, it, it, everything's demoralized because, you know, individuals that we call on first responders, you know, specifically are supposed to be that rock, that foundation, that support where it's still OK to, you know, admit that something bothered you or that, you know, something is trauma that still plays in your mind about what could have been done differently if you would have responded faster, whatever the case may be. So, you know, opening that door, that's what like, you know, going in where, you know, your program, Mike. You know, you, you going in there, your organization going in there to where, you know, starting at core level, as Chris stated, you know, with the supervisors to where they make these meetings mandatory to where the whole agency is going. That way, you know, the, those hard-shelled guys going in there or, or women, you know, going in there to where they, they can still go in there with that little hard shell that they have. But, you know, as you stated earlier to where, you know, you can, or Chris mentioned earlier about the, He's sitting there, just sitting there, just sitting there. All of a sudden, it's like, the, oh, hey, yeah, hey, I do have something to bother. You know, because that is that way where you force individuals to engage, where, hey, look, you know what? You don't have to come in here and talk, but come in here and listen to what they have to say. You know, and I, I really think that's a big step, and that's why I think it's beautiful and it's great of what you do. And, you know, I want to see this inside more agencies and, you know, kind of exposing more individuals to come out and talk. And that's what really the, you know, like Chris just said, you know, I don't, I don't think – we're ever going to have the way to make it to where everybody's prepared for, you know, witnessing the trauma, but, you know, we do have to prepare them to talk about it, you know, to make it okay to talk about it. And it has to start at an early level, you know, first, you know, the cadets first going into the training, like we want you to know that, you know, any incidents that do bother you, we want you to be open about coming in and talking about, it. you know, like Mike, you said earlier that, come on, bitch, you know, just, you know, toughen up and come on, let's go handle this next one. You know what right. I mean? Where it, it has to be normalized to where things that are bothering an individual to talk about. First responders all the way across the board, you know, so. 
Well, there's simple, there's simple little things about like, for example, the military, you know, how old are you? How old are you when you go in the military? 17, 19, right? Okay. After 9-11, after 9-11 happened, how many kids do you think joined? <laughs> where did they go? They went right into freaking combat and they were coming right out of mommy and daddy's house, you know, right, right off, right off the nipple, if you will, and right into, right into combat. Okay. And they, you know, they had whatever training they were given and then, then they, they come back and they're not, they're not normal. I mean, kind of a, kind of a cliche thing, but one of the, one of the slogans that I use in peacekeepers for life is it never stops even when you come home. So this, and that, that goes with anything you do in the first responder arena, the military, whatever you just, you never turn it off. You'll, you'll, you'll push it down while you're having that beer or that fifth of vodka or whatever it is, you push it down or you, or you, you know, you go out and you, you shoot your guns with your buddies, whatever, but it's still not going to go away. You know, you, you don't forget about it and you may, you may knock it down for four five, six, seven months, years, whatever, but something's going to trigger it. I mean, today Vietnam guys are dealing with a lot of shit that they dealt with when they were in Vietnam. And we're talking, 50 plus years ago that they're dealing with today because of things that have happened just this last 18 months with COVID and the government defiance that's going on, not to get political again, but the government defiance and, and the, the way things are happening in the country. Well, talk about that the VA with COVID, you know, a lot, a lot of these veterans, they're not even able to go in and talk to their counselor as they used to. You know, some of them are trying to force the veterans to utilize the actual telehealth to where they speak to them, you know, via their phone or their uh, desktop. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of them don't have access to that or a lot of them don't have that. And you have veterans today, you know, like I, I have family that a sound, a loud bang sets them off. And like you said, you know, we're talking 50, 60 years ago. And it's just like, but it's still there. And it's just like it was yesterday to them. And, you know, general civilians and just people they really don't understand that it's like oh yeah right hey you're just just fucking deal with it it's it's not that simple for everybody it's really not you know so it's the making it okay to talk about it and it's the like with the veterans like the va it's not that the the people there don't want to do for individuals but hey they're so understaffed but again going back to what you said mike to where i, I don't believe that somebody that went to college and read a book should be talking to somebody that watched carnage day after day you know granted not every not every military vet actually seen combat but that doesn't mean that they're still not affected by you know the actual being in the service and knowing that that went on they could have had a brother that was you know in the combat themselves lost or experienced situations and things like that so it's just I will, tell, I will tell you on a personal level and i know this is live so and i'm going to tell you this is the first time i've actually said this in a public forum, I suffer from survivor's guilt. And I say that because I was in the first Gulf War. It wasn't a war, it was a conflict. And right. my Gulf War vets will probably be pissed off at me saying that. But you know what? I truly believe in my heart that had we taken care of the problem back then, 9-11 probably wouldn't have happened. I take personal experience and personal survivor's guilt for that because I was part of that conflict that failed. Even though we kicked their ass and you know blew them out of the you know in, in the air, but 9/11 happened, 
And who's who's behind 9-11? Saddam, bin Laden, all those knuckleheads. Okay. But have we taken care of them? But I struggle with that every day. That's one of my big struggles. But the way that I do that is that I show that through my passion to get the word out that I'm human and I have my struggles. But the reality is, is that there is light at the end of this home. There is that stigma that we need to get rid of, which is why I'm pushing that PTSD, get rid of that D. It's I, it's injury or an illness. It can be corrected. It can be fixed. You can get recovered. You can recover from it and have a fulfilling and, and healthy life after the fact. Once you identify it and say, hey, I've got a problem. I need help. Yes, sir, Chris. Sorry, guys, I've got to jam out of here. Mike, I appreciate your openness, your vulnerability, your strength that you're showing to everybody. Um, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of this. I think that people just seeing these things will give people more courage. Uh, and again, it's another, a step at the grassroots level to try to normalize just the conversation. And I've said it a thousand times. I don't think we're solving any problems here, but we're definitely taking the air out of the balloon so people back off that ledge a little bit. And that's just enough to save lives. That's so thank great. you for that, brother. Well, thank you. Appreciate you. Be safe out there, Chris. All right. And I'm certain we've met somewhere. I can't put my hand on it. Have you been to a HITS conference or something? I know I've seen you before. We've met before. Was it HITS? HITS. Have you been to HITS? Yeah. I, I, it, was, it was a couple of years ago that I was. In Chicago? Yeah. A couple of years okay. ago. Okay. That's, that's where it was. <laughs> where it was. Yeah. All right. So Michael, Michael, thanks for having me. Mike, we'll see you, my friend. Okay. Yes, take sir. care, both. Stay safe. Stay blessed. God thanks. bless. Thanks. All right, Mike. So, you want to get into the dogs? <laughs> yes, I was about to, you know, because one of the things, too, because one of the things I do want to cover, I mean, because I could go on for days and hours, especially talking to individuals that I have the same passions about, you know, and uh, but I, I do want to kind of cover any kind of specifics that, you know, individuals want to reach out for the Peacekeepers for Life. Okay. And then, you know, also, I, I do want to get into the dogs because, you know, a lot of times, I mean, and, and you'll get into, you know, the provisions of that as well too but a lot of times you know that's just like with you know some of my buddies actually have you know the pets and everything, the, the vet dogs that sometimes that that does i'm not going to say cures but it takes that ptsi part and that is the treatment for it it is the medication for it to where you know they don't dogs didn't earn the title men's best men's best duh, duh, men's, men's best, best friend by for, for no reason you know what i mean but uh but yeah, let's, let's definitely uh, you know get into that and everything else too, because you know I know that you know, you, tr you travel as well, so. Yeah, I, I I the dog thing, it's always been a understanding and a comfort level with me. Um, I was a canine agitator. I did the agitation, you know, took bites with the bite suit and all that kind of stuff, and I, I wanted to be a canine officer at one point in my career, and just didn't work out for whatever reason, but. It was one of those things where, you know, dogs were always, they always had a special place in my heart. And when I worked at the hospital um, in California, pediatric hospital, we'd have therapy dogs and stuff that would come through, volunteer organizations and stuff. And just to watch that dynamic and put that smile on that kid's face who's suffering and that kind of stuff. And it was just, it was just kind of a cool, cool interaction, cool dynamic, if you will. Um, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I 
got put into a database through the VA. And I was picked out of a group, a database, um, that I was basically eligible and qualified for a service dog. And I thought to myself at first, I was like, you know, I don't, I don't need a dog. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, some, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's other vets out there that really could really benefit from a dog that I don't want to take it from somebody else. So I went back and I said to them, I said, you know, I'm, I'm not really, this is not really something that I need to, need to, you know, venture out on right now. And so, well, you know, let's look at it this way. The organization that you're, that you're doing, that, that you're associated with and what the, the mission that you're doing it can work for both on both sides. So I kind of slept on it a little bit, pondered a little bit with it back and forth. And I thought, you know, that might be a good way to get this word out and help me get, get my mission complete or at least pushing in the right direction. So took the dog, um, signed up with the dog and I got assigned the dog in January of last year. I would fly to Georgia one week a month from January to May and do a week's of train weeks worth of training until the second week of May to when I was able to bring the dog home when we got certified. So we got certified as a canine handler and my service dog. My service dog's name is Abrams. It kind of started the infant stages of my next mission right there at that point. And with Paws Paws Working Dog Support Network. That's who provided the dog. He's a, it's a nonprofit. They were based out of Blairsville, Georgia. And the trainer there, he trains other vets and other people who have a passion for dogs to be master trainers, if you will, to train service dogs, therapy, and emotional support dogs and whatnot. Well, when I got Abrams, I thought there's got to be more to this than just having a service dog. There's got to be more that I'm going to get out of this that's going to help other people and not just make it my dog. So I approached my trainer, Ed Abel with Paws Working Support Dogs Network. And I said, Hey, what are some things that I can do that you might, that might help you and your organization to get the word out about how we can get service dogs for veterans? They use rescues, a lot of rescues. So it's, it's one of those things where he's in a small town in, in Georgia, but He's got a huge following and a huge network for dogs. So I thought, you know, why don't, since I'm going out talking, I'll start plugging service dogs and therapy and comfort dogs. So when I'd go out and I'd talk, my dog would go with me and Abram would go with me. I mentioned earlier about the FBI Academy. I go into this room and it's during COVID. So I go into the room and it's a room with about 300 plus seats, but there's only about 40 seats filled because of COVID. So the whole back wall of this room is all jumbotrons and huge televisions. And there's 300 plus agents from all over the world that are in this, in this room during my 45 minutes of training that I have that I'm given about resiliency and, and suicide awareness and PTSD and stuff. Well, the first thing I do is I walk in this room and I see this room and I go, man, what am I doing here? These guys are like, they're, they're like, you know, they're like my heroes. I mean, what am I? I don't qualify. I don't qualify to be sitting here talking all. And I drop my leash and I let the dog walk around. And he starts wandering around and kind of sniffing things out. And I kind of break the ice. I'm like, hey, hope nobody has any drugs because he'll find them and find them in your backpacks if he's got it. You know, and they're they're you know they laugh. <laughs> so Abrams goes and he walks around the room and he's just kind of there. And once he clears out the room, 
he then comes up and he sits down next to me and just kind of watches me as I'm going going through my spiel. And I start talking about, hey, the importance of dogs and how, you know, you don't necessarily have to have your own dog, but it'd be nice to have a dog in your department. So that way, if someone has a bad day or is having a struggle or has an incident, they can go to this place at the station and pick up the dog and take the dog back to their office or take the dog back to, you know, to where their workplace is for a couple of hours and just kind of hmm. on with the dog and take a little bit of the, the stressor off of them. So that's the therapy and comfort side of it to where anytime I go talk, I go talk and plug service dogs and therapy and comfort dogs. For Remember, I like way back in the day, like with firefighters, you know, they always used to have like their little Dalmatians and all that stuff. Right? Huh. Okay. So starting this dynamic and starting this thought process for these police and fire departments, as I go around and I talk, I start thinking, you know, there's more to the dog that you can get and benefit from it. So we started branching out and putting dogs with peer support teams and critical incident stress response teams, members on the team. So when they go out to these critical incidents, they take the dog and the dog takes the stress and brings it down and de-escalates it. Okay. Started doing that talk and my trainer at Pause Working Support Dogs Network says to me, he says, you know what? We want you to be on our board of directors. I said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't have time for that. But let's do this. Why don't I be your national spokesperson? Why don't Abrams and I be your national spokesperson? And guess what? We'll call ourselves the canine patriot because I'm so patriotic. I'm a veteran. No, I'm a, I'm a retired cop. Love America. God bless the USA, blah, blah, blah. And he's my canine partner. So we started this canine patriot mission to where now we go around and we educate and advocate on the effects of PTSD, police, fire, first responders, military, and suicide awareness, and the importance of dogs in that dynamic, whether it's on a personal level, because someone needs a dog for their personal struggles, or they've got a department that is maybe not so big, or even big, tried to get Dogs with departments like LAPD and LA sheriffs, and then COVID hit, and funding wasn't really a thing. Right. The thing that people don't understand, and that for, for those of you that are watching, there's no cost. There's no cost to the department. All we ask is for a donation. Basically, the dog is a free dog. He's trained. He's given and provided to the police department or the fire department free of charge, and all we ask is a donation. The last few departments we did, we did four dogs. They gave, they gave, they donated a check for ten grand to the org, to our organization, and that got three more dogs. And then so now another question too. So with the dogs, I know you say that they're trained. Do they all go through the same training that Abrams went through in Georgia, or is there a specific training that all of your dogs get put through? That you know you have special. I mean, because you know everybody has. You know training criteria but especially with you your background and you knowing the effects of you know you having abrams and how much it's benefited you so do you have specific criteria that all of these dogs that are trained are yes. placed in these different departments and agencies so okay service dogs under the american disabilities act is any dog that someone says that they have a disability 
Okay? I can go to Amazon and I can go order a vest and put a service dog patch on it and call it a service dog. Right. Okay? Under the American Disabilities Act, people, businesses, all that are only allowed to ask what type of service the dog provides. Okay. Medical, you know, whatever. They can't ask what kind of medical issue. No, they can't under the Disability Act. So you ask about training. Abrams went through PTSD and stress, stress de-escalation training after he went through obedience training and the potty training and all that kind of stuff. When I went back for one week a month for five months, I went through handler training for a service dog. Okay. Once he and I did our bonding and we, we were matched up and we actually got along is when my training started. I have 200 plus hours of training, service dog handling training with Abrams specific. Mm -hmm. Then my trainer at Able, he signs off on it saying that I completed the training that was required for the course in order to certify Abrams as my service dog. The canine patriot part is, is that we're just now a service dog and handler dynamic or component that makes up canine patriot. Okay. Canine patriot, we go out and we talk and educate and advocate on the importance of what dogs can do in the PTSD environment or the arena or the stress or catastrophic event. Does that make sense? Who, who does it? Who do, yeah, makes perfect sense. Now, who does that scheduling? So I, I know you were saying about, you know, you and Abrams being the spokesperson or the spokes. spokes yeah. Right. So, I mean, so now do, do they have, I'm not going to see, are you required, but, you know, do they schedule certain conferences or certain uh, areas to where, you know, you're, you and Abrams are to go to speak, or is that something that, that you take it in your own and you find the areas that you feel is important? So how, how does that all work? What I did when I, before I got Abrams, I would basically just go out and talk at conferences. I'd go attend conferences and I'd sign up to be a guest speaker. Um, if it was something related to what it is that I talk about. Um, when I got Abrams, I started looking at other organizations that would benefit from a service dog. Um, military organizations. I went to VFWs, I went to American Legions. And, and just basically, and it was more like just a meet and greet kind of thing. But as far as getting scheduled, most of it now is word of mouth, especially with COVID because a lot of them are doing online. I don't like Zoom stuff. It's not personal enough. It's not, they can't really see see me and my interaction with Abrams and that. I mean, Abrams is important. Down, he's sitting down right next to me right now because he's just kind of checking out what I'm doing. But that is vital, though, in trying to spread the message and to see the benefit of, you know, like you said, you know, doing a Zoom meeting or just like, you know, having a meeting like this, you know, that personalization between you and Abrams, because that's the reason why they're getting the dog or why you're, you know, teaching them about the benefits of having the dog. Right. You, know, you can sit there and like show in a video. They don't know if it's a statue or anything else. You know what I mean? But, you know, right. seeing that actual interaction being able to see you do certain commands to Abrams. How many takes and, in that video did it take to make that video, you know? You know, right. all that kind of stuff. 
So it's, it, it's vital. It really is. And personalization is always greater when you know you can add that. And that's the benefit of you going in. That's why I was asking some of the questions too, because you know one of the things that I want to cover before you know we end is you know is there like how far in advance does an agency or an individual have to request like through your organization to come out there and speak to them like so you know is it a, a day a week you know a month a couple months or you know how, how does the scheduling happen with you know not just the, the peacekeepers for life but also with you know the, the pauls for dogs and everything the, uh i'm sorry pauls and warriors and the, uh the pauls pauls working dogs so how does the scheduling happen how far in advance does someone have to request your services in order to obtain the services? Well, I will tell you, it's it's no no fault of your own. It's not services I provide because I don't charge anything. Right. All I ask is if you want me to come talk or you want Abrams and I to come and appear at an event, cover my expenses. If my airfare, you need me to fly to New York tomorrow, book me a flight, get me a hotel, pick me up at the airport. If I need that's, to that's what I'm getting at. I mean, I, I know you don't charge and, you know, and, and that, that, that is something that I do want to kind of, so like when I, once the, the live recording is done and everything else, because I'm going to, I'll do another kind of like a commercial okay. that actually shows everything. But I do want to promote it because that is like really huge in what it is you do is that no cost, you know, yeah. and, you know, providing, I mean, how big of a deal is that just you know having to cover somebody's expenses you know for what they provide and things like that but you know even still you know is the that's why i'm asking this question is for general public you know as if it was them asking the question as far as you know how far in advance so you know if i wanted you out here you know this coming weekend all i'd have to do is and then should because you're you have a contact page on, on each of those sites which individuals across the bottom of the screen you'll see the sites that you can go to but what's the best mode? So they, they just go under the contact page or do you prefer like somebody sends you an email or what's the best mode for individuals yeah, to reach I'll, out to you? I'll tell you, the website, the website talks about what we're about. Email is the best way to get to get in touch with me. Um, and and I'll, 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 when we do the commercial, I'll give you my phone number. It's, it's my personal cell phone, okay? I am, I am a one-man show. My dog and I were a one we're a one man, one dog team. But as far as if you called me tomorrow and said, Hey, I need you in Boston on Saturday. If I got nothing going on on Saturday, I'll be in Boston. It's not, it's not a matter of, and, and, and I, I very rarely with COVID now, now that it's starting to lift and we're starting to, you know, get other things coming up and stuff, events are getting, are getting calendared. So if you want to book something, reach out, let's contact and, if, if I can make your event this month and maybe it's a monthly thing, maybe I, maybe I need to schedule it out two months if I've got something else going on, but I'm retired. This is what I'm doing. This is my passion. I got to go to New York Saturday and be in Vegas on Monday and let's work it out. We'll, we'll work it out. I'll, I'll make it happen if I don't have anything on my calendar. Kind of what we were talking about earlier too, as far as the, you know, once we do retire and kind of step out to where it's kind of like the, you get the finger out of the wave, you know, but the, uh, you know, it's the, it, it's phenomenal what you do. Like, I can't commend you enough. I mean, it's beautiful what you do and it, it and especially how much this needs to be addressed. You 
know, there's so many individuals that want somebody to talk to, but you know, the, the demoralizing of it or, you know, fear of insubordination just because it's something fucking bothered you. You know what I mean? It's, right. it, it affects a lot of individuals that otherwise would speak up, you know, talk to their fellow brother, sister, or, you know, and because a lot of individuals do want to feel comfortable talking to their supervisors. But say, hey, how do we do that? You know what I mean? So, and, I, and that's why I love like the peer counseling aspect of it to where it's the, you know, being able to go to somebody. I mean, it, it has to be put in a place. And, you know, agencies need to have you come in there and kind of talk to them. Not, you know, not necessarily saying, hey, this is the way to do it. You know, I have all the answers, you know, Ikea. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but in the same sense, though, it's it, it, your experience. You've been through it, you know, as the being able to tell somebody, hey, I can know what you're going through, opposed to, well, you know, I, I read Oliver Twist. And, you know, it's, it's, there's things that you can't get in a book that yeah. you can get the, all the experience you've had, what you've seen, and you've been exposed to things that, you know, individuals should never have to be exposed to. I mean, realistically. And you I know, think, I, I thank God every day that I'm able, that I'm able to do this. It's, it's funny because sometimes, and there's people in my past that are like, you know, why, why are you doing this? Why do you even care? It's like, you know what? Because it's, I think that's that's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing today. I think this not is many people find their calling. Not, not not many people do, and that's a blessing as well too. That you know you do recognize that, and it's a passion that you do. It's, yeah, and I just I did, this is my this is my last life's mission. I mean, I'm I just turned 56 last month, so I'm I'm I, I got a few good years left of me, and I'm as long as I can travel and all that, and I can still get on a plane and do that, I'll I'll go anywhere. I mean, I. I went to Canada. I went to Canada last year, and I spoke in Canada, and that was that was an interesting thing. That was interesting. I'd never been to Canada, but it was it was interesting. And they do it. They're suffering just like we are here in, in the United States. You know, they do they do police work just the same way we do here. So. Yeah, it's not limited to just one demographic. You know, it, it may change, and you know, depending on culture and stuff like that as well too. You know, every agency is going to have their own inner culture and all that stuff as well too. Yeah. But you know, everybody has emotion. I mean, we're all human beings and stuff like that. So I mean, it affects everybody as a whole. So, and like you said, I don't know it all. I don't. I, I just have answers and some information based on the things that I've experienced and been exposed to, and and how I how I cope with them. You take it for what it's worth. Some people are going to be like, oh, "This guy's whatever." It's like, okay, that's fine. But I just something's got to be done because things are things that are happening today are not working. The suicide rates are just unacceptable today and on, and on top of that i mean how high the numbers are we don't have any new recruits going into the military we don't have any new recruits going into law enforcement and first responders in general as it used to be so you know we don't have anybody coming in there to you know kind of you know witness the veterans or be given you know that tool that hey look you know if something's bothering you talk about it and you know if agencies you know don't see the importance and how vital it is that this topic is addressed and it's addressed immediately. They shouldn't be an administration, period. I mean, that's flat out. I mean, it's 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 an it's it's an epidemic, you know, that's on a larger scale than anything else we've seen. It really is. They're they're so, in a tough position in that leadership position. They're in a really tough position. But like you said, I mean, it's it, you you don't just sell your soul just because you don't forget. You know where you came from you know just don't you just don't you can't do that you're still you still wear you still wear a uniform you still wear a badge you still have you know some kind of expectation of leadership and caring and you know it's still important 
And is there is there anything else you want to cover today, or? No, I think I think we I, we covered a lot of stuff. It's I I, I mean I, I really appreciate you taking the time and reaching out, Mike. I mean this is this is good stuff, and I'd love to I'd love to come back and touch on touch on some more stuff at another time. It'd be great. Well, and uh, just just so you know, so I'm getting a commercial together for it as well too. So starting October 17th, I know it's kind of like an odd date, but from the 17th on, I'm actually going to start a mental health awareness you know, the week for what I'm doing. I'm bringing a lot of individuals on. Great. I'll, ha I'll have Michael Subaru on there as well, too. You know, he'll be on the 19th. But I'd love to bring you back on because, you know, the more that we get together and, you know, have like-minded individuals that have the passions that we have about this, I mean, we'll be able to address on a larger scale, you know, the issues that need to happen, have more individuals comfortable about, you know, speaking up, speaking out, or, you know, just sending you an email by check. You know what I mean? It's like the, hey, you don't have to talk to a fellow brother or sister. Hey, you send emails. That's why, you know, like my E33 here 24-7, that's the reason it's there. It's just because you don't have to talk to the people right in front. You know, and that's why I want to kind of, you know, get with you because I wouldn't mind, you know, adhering that, you know, or covering that cost to get you inside agency. So if I'm, that's why I'm to kind of, you know, get you on here so we can kind of toggle back and forth, expose you to the public. I can go out and find different agencies that I can book you a slot to go in there and speak with them because it is vital on what you do. It is vital on, you know, them receiving your guidance, you know. And they, they yeah, need there's, to, there's, not, there's not an event too small, but, I mean, ultimately, obviously, the more the more people I can I can get the word out to, the better. Um, conferences is, is a lot of my focus, but and I'm going to Boston the 20th to the 26th for a, a meet and greet, and it's a big networking event in the mental health community, but it's primarily going to be like Boston, Massachusetts type, and New York that's there for these two big organizations that are doing it. But again, to get the word out, uh, I'm going to be in Arlington, Texas, on the first week of November, November 4th to the 7th, um, and it's a big meet and greet for big and rich, the country stars that are advocating for the mental health community and first responders and stuff. And it's going to be a little political, but, but, but canine, you know, canine Patriots going to be there representing to get the word out there as well. I'm going to send you a, uh, Ikea t-shirt so you can wear it as easy as There you go. Make sure it's red, white, blue though. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, Mike, I appreciate your time greatly. And then for all the viewers at home, I'm going to have Mike's information is on, on the screen. It's running across that ticker. But I'll, I'll post this with all of his different websites, his email information. You know, I I implore you to reach out if, you know, you yourself are just an officer or first responder. You know, you yourself can reach out. But, you know, also get with your agencies and to see if, you know, you can get, you know, Mike services to come out there to, you know, speak to the whole agency or, you know, forward his information on to others that, you know, weren't able to, you know, join this broadcast, watch this broadcast or have any resources themselves. Anywhere. I do travel. It's anywhere. It just doesn't have to be just in Texas or California. I'll go anywhere. So. Perfect. Again, Mike, it's a blessing, you know, you jumping on here. I look forward to speaking to you again here in the near future. And, you know, you, your family and your organization, you stay safe and stay blessed in all you do and you and April's. Thanks a lot, Mike. You take care. Thanks again. Always. Thank you. Talk to you soon.